Chapter Twenty Eight of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Looks after Oliver and proceeds with his adventures. Wolves tear your throats," muttered Sykes, grinding his teeth. "I wish I was among some of you. You'd owl the horse for it." As Sykes growled forth this imprecation with the most desperate ferocity that his desperate nature was capable of, he rested the body of the wounded boy across his bended knee and turned his head for an instant to look back at his pursuers. There was little to be made out in the mist and darkness, but the loud shouting of the men vibrated through the air, and the barking of the neighbouring dogs, roused by the sound of the alarm-bell, resounded in every direction. "'Stop, you white-livered hound!' cried the robber, shouting after Toby Crackett, who, making the best use of his long legs, was already ahead. "'Stop!' The repetition of the word brought Toby to a dead standstill, for he was not quite satisfied that he was beyond the range of pistol-shot, and Sykes was in no mood to be played with. "'Bear a hand with the boy!' cried Sykes, beckoning furiously to his confederate. "'Come back!' Toby made a show of returning, but ventured in a low voice, broken for want of breath, to intimate considerable reluctance as he came slowly along. "'Quicker!' cried Sykes, laying the boy in a dry ditch at his feet, and drawing a pistol from his pocket. "'Don't play booty with me!' At this moment the noise grew louder. Sykes, again looking round, could discern that the men who had given chase were already climbing the gate of the field in which he stood, and that a couple of dogs were some paces in advance of them. "'It's all up, Bill!' cried Toby. "'Drop the kid and show him your eels!' With this parting advice, Mr. Crackett, preferring the chance of being shot by his friend to the certainty of being taken by his enemies, fairly turned tail and darted off at full speed. Sykes clenched his teeth, took one look around, threw over the prostrate form of Oliver the cape in which he had been hurriedly muffled, ran along the front of the hedge as if to distract the attention of those behind from the spot where the boy lay paused for a second before another hedge which met it at right angles, and whirling his pistol high into the air, cleared it at a bound, and was gone. "'How, how there!' cried a tremulous voice in the rear. "'Pincher, Neptune, come here, come here!' The dogs, who, in common with their masters, seemed to have no particular relish for the sport in which they were engaged, readily answered to the command. Three men, who had by this time advanced some distance into the field, stopped to take counsel together. "'My advice, or leastways, I should say, my orders is,' said the fattest man of the party, "'that we immediately go home again.' "'I am agreeable to anything which is agreeable to Mr. Giles,' said a shorter man, who was by no means of a slim figure, and who was very pale in the face and very polite, as frightened men frequently are. "'I shouldn't wish to appear ill-mannered, gentlemen,' said the third who had called the dogs back. "'Mr. Giles ought to know.' "'Certainly,' replied the shorter man, "'and whatever Mr. Giles says, it isn't our place to contradict him. Now, now I know my situation. Thank my stars I know my situation.' To tell the truth, the little man did seem to know his situation, and to know perfectly well that it was by no means a desirable one, for his teeth chattered in his head as he spoke. "'You're afraid, Brittles,' said Mr. Giles. "'I aren't,' said Brittles. "'You are,' said Giles. "'You're a falsehood, Mr. Giles,' said Brittles. "'You're a lie, Brittles,' said Mr. Giles.' Now these four retorts arose from Mr. Giles's taunt, and Mr. Giles's taunt had arisen from his indignation at having the responsibility of going home again, imposed upon himself under cover of a compliment. 
The third man brought the dispute to a close most philosophically. "'I'll tell you what it is, gentlemen,' he said, "'we're all afraid.' "'Speak for yourself, sir,' said Mr. Giles, who was the palest of the party. "'So I do,' replied the man. "'It's natural and proper to be afraid under such circumstances. I am.' "'So am I,' said Brittles. "'Only there's no call to tell a man he is so bounceably.' These frank admissions softened Mr. Giles, who had once owned that he was afraid, upon which they all three faced about and ran back again with the completest unanimity, until Mr. Giles, who had the shortest wind of the party, and was encumbered with a pitchfork, most handsomely insisted on stopping, to make an apology for his hastiness of speech. "'But it's wonderful,' said Mr. Giles, when he had explained, "'what a man will do when his blood is up. I should have committed murder.' I know I should, if we'd caught one of them rascals." As the other two were impressed with a similar presentiment, and as their blood like his had all gone down again, some speculation ensued upon the cause of this sudden change in their temperament. "'I know what it was,' said Mr. Giles. "'It was the gate.' "'I shouldn't wonder if it was,' exclaimed Brittles, catching at the idea. "'You may depend upon it,' said Giles, "'that that gate stopped the flow of the excitement. I felt all mine suddenly going away, as I was climbing over it." By a remarkable coincidence the other two had been visited with the same unpleasant sensation at that precise moment. It was quite obvious, therefore, that it was the gate, especially as there was no doubt regarding the time at which the change had taken place, because all three remembered that they had come in sight of the robbers at the instant of its occurrence. This dialogue was held between the two men who had surprised the burglars and a travelling tinker who had been sleeping in an outhouse, and who had been roused, together with his two mongrel curs, to join in the pursuit. Mr. Giles acted in the double capacity of butler and steward to the old lady of the mansion. Brittles was a lad of all work, who, having entered her service a mere child, was treated as a promising young boy still, though he was something past thirty. Encouraging each other with such converse as this, but keeping very close together notwithstanding, and looking apprehensively round whenever a fresh gust rattled through the boughs, the three men hurried back to a tree, behind which they had left their lantern, lest its light should inform the thieves in what direction to fire. Catching up the light they made the best of their way home at a good round trot, and long after their dusky forms had ceased to be discernible the light might have been seen twinkling and dancing in the distance like some exhalation of the damp and gloomy atmosphere through which it was swiftly borne. The air grew colder as the day came slowly on, and the mist rolled along the ground like a dense cloud of smoke. The grass was wet, the pathways and low places were all mire and water. The damp breath of an unwholesome wind went languidly by with a hollow moaning. Still Oliver lay motionless and insensible on the spot where Sykes had left him. Morning drew on apace. The air became more sharp and piercing as its first dull hue, the death of night rather than the birth of day, glimmered faintly in the sky. The objects which had looked dim and terrible in the darkness grew more and more defined, and gradually resolved into their familiar shapes. The rain came down, thick and fast, and pattered noisily among the leafless bushes. But Oliver felt it not, as it beat against him, for he still lay stretched helpless and unconscious on his bed of clay. At length a low cry of pain broke the stillness that prevailed, and uttering it the boy awoke. 
His left arm, rudely bandaged in a shawl, hung heavily and useless at his side. The bandage was saturated with blood. He was so weak that he could scarcely raise himself into a sitting posture. When he had done so, he looked feebly round for help, and groaned with pain. Trembling in every joint from cold and exhaustion, he made an effort to stand upright, but shuddering from head to foot fell prostrate on the ground. After a short return of the stupor in which he had been so long plunged, Oliver, urged by a creeping sickness at his heart, which seemed to warn him that if he lay there he must surely die, got upon his feet and essayed to walk. His head was dizzy, and he staggered to and fro like a drunken man. But he kept up nevertheless, and with his head drooping languidly on his breast, went stumbling onward he knew not whither. And now hosts of bewildering and confused ideas came crowding on his mind. He seemed to be still walking between Sykes and Crackett, who were angrily disputing, for the very words they said sounded in his ears, and when he caught his own attention, as it were, by making some violent effort to save himself from falling, he found that he was talking to them. Then he was alone with Sykes, plodding on as on the previous day, and as shadowy people passed them he felt the robber's grasp upon his wrist. Suddenly he started back at the report of firearms. There rose into the air loud cries and shouts, lights gleamed before his eyes, all was noise and tumult, as some unseen hand bore him hurriedly away. Through all these rapid visions there ran an undefined, uneasy consciousness of pain, which wearied and tormented him incessantly. Thus he staggered on, creeping almost mechanically between the bars of gates or through hedge-gaps as they came in his way, until he reached the road. Here the rain began to fall so heavily that it roused him. He looked about and saw that at no great distance there was a house which perhaps he could reach. Pitying his condition they might have compassion on him, and if they did not it would be better, he thought, to die near human beings than in the lonely open fields. He summoned up all his strength for one last trial, and bent his faltering steps towards it. As he drew nearer to this house, a feeling came over him that he had seen it before. He remembered nothing of its details, but the shape and aspect of the building seemed familiar to him. That garden wall! On the grass inside he had fallen on his knees last night, and prayed the two men's mercy. It was the very house they had attempted to rob. Oliver felt such fear come over him when he recognised the place that for the instant he forgot the agony of his wound and thought only of flight. Flight! He could scarcely stand, and if he were in full possession of the best powers of a slight and youthful frame, whither could he fly? He pushed against the garden gate. It was unlocked and swung open on its hinges. He tottered across the lawn, climbed the steps, knocked faintly at the door, and his whole strength failing him sunk down against one of the pillars of the little portico. It happened that about this time Mr. Giles, Brittles, and the Tinker were recruiting themselves, after the fatigues and terrors of the night, with tea and sundries in the kitchen. Not that it was Mr. Giles's habit to admit to too great familiarity with the humbler servants, towards whom it was rather his wont to deport himself with a lofty affability, which, while it gratified, could not fail to remind them of his superior position in society. 
but death fires and burglary make all men equals so mr giles sat with his legs stretched out before the kitchen fender leaning his left arm on the table while with his right he illustrated a circumstantial and minute account of the robbery to which his bearers but especially the cook and housemaid who were of the party listened with breathless interest it was about half-past two said mr giles or i wouldn't swear that it mightn't have been a little nearer three when i woke up and turning round in my bed as it might be so here mr giles turned round in his chair and pulled the corner of the tablecloth over him to imitate bedclothes i fancied i heard a noise at this point of the narrative the cook turned pale and asked the housemaid to shut the door who asked brittles who asked the tinker who pretended not to hear hear the noise continued mr giles i says at first this is illusion and was composing myself off to sleep when i heard the noise again distinct what sort of noise asked the cook a kind of busting noise replied mr giles looking round him more like the noise of powdering a iron bar on an upmeg grater suggested brittles it was when you heard it sir rejoined mr giles but at this time it had a busting sound i turned down the clothes continued giles rolling back the tablecloth sat up in bed and listened the cook and housemaid simultaneously ejaculated law and drew their chairs closer together i heard it now quite apparent resumed mr giles somebody i says is forcing of a door or window what's to be done i'll call up the poor lad brittles and save him from being murdered in his bed or his throat says i may be cut from his right ear to his left without his ever knowing it here all eyes were turned upon brittles who fixed his upon the speaker and stared at him with his mouth wide open and his face expressive of the most unmitigated horror i tossed off the clothes said giles throwing away the tablecloth and looking very hard at the cook and housemaid got softly out of bed drew on a pair of a lady's present mr giles murmured the tinker of shoes sir said giles turning upon him and laying great emphasis on the word seized the loaded pistol that always goes upstairs with the plate-basket and walked on tiptoes to his room brittles i says when i had woke him don't be frightened so you did observed brittles in a low voice we're dead men i think brittles says i continued giles but don't be frightened was he frightened asked the cock not a bit of it replied mr giles he was as firm ah pretty near as firm as i was oh, i should have died at once i'm sure if it had been me observed the housemaid you're a woman retorted brittles plucking up a little brittles is right said mr giles nodding his head approvingly from a woman nothing else was to be expected we being men took a dark lantern that was standing on brittles hob and groped our way downstairs in the pitch dark as it might be so Mr. Giles had risen from his seat, and taken two steps with his eyes shut, to accompany his description with appropriate action, when he started violently in common with the rest of the company and hurried back to his chair. The cook and housemaid screamed. "'It was a knock,' said Mr. Giles, assuming perfect serenity. "'Open the door, somebody.' Nobody moved. "'It seems a strange sort of thing, a knock coming at such a time in the morning,' said Mr. Giles, surveying the pale faces which surrounded him, and looking very blank himself. "'But the door must be opened. Do you hear? Somebody?' Mr. Giles, as he spoke, looked at Brittles, but that young man, being naturally modest, 
probably considered himself nobody, and so held that the inquiry could not have any application to him. At all events he tendered no reply. Mr. Giles directed an appealing glance at the tinker, but he had suddenly fallen asleep. The women were out of the question. "'If Brittles would rather open the door in the presence of witnesses,' said Mr. Giles, after a short silence, "'I am ready to make one.' "'So am I,' said the tinker, waking up as suddenly as he had fallen asleep. Brittles capitulated on these terms, and the party being somewhat reassured by the discovery, made on throwing open the shutters, that it was now broad day, took their way upstairs, with the dogs in front. The two women who were afraid to stay below brought up the rear. By the advice of Mr. Giles they all talked very loud, to warn any evil-disposed person outside that they were strong in numbers, and by a master-stroke of policy, originating in the brain of the same ingenious gentleman, the dogs' tails were well pinched in the hall to make them bark savagely. These precautions having been taken, Mr. Giles held on fast by the tinker's arm, to prevent his running away, as he pleasantly said, and gave the word of command to open the door. Brittles obeyed. The group, peeping timorously over each other's shoulders, beheld no more formidable object than poor little Oliver Twist, speechless and exhausted, who raised his heavy eyes and mutely solicited their compassion. "'A boy!' exclaimed Mr. Giles valiantly, pushing the tinker into the background. "'What's the matter with the—eh? Why, Brittles, look here! Don't you know?' Brittles, who had got behind the door to open it, no sooner saw Oliver than he uttered a loud cry. Mr. Giles, seizing the boy by one leg and one arm, fortunately not the broken limb, lugged him straight into the hall and deposited him at full length on the floor thereof. "'Here he is!' bawled Giles, calling in a state of great excitement up the staircase. "'Here's one of the thieves, ma'am! Here's a thief, miss! Wounded, miss! I shot him, miss! And Brittles held the light!' "'In a lantern, miss!' cried Brittles, applying one hand to the side of his mouth, so that his voice might travel the better. The two women-servants ran upstairs to carry the intelligence that Mr. Giles had captured a robber, and the tinker busied himself in endeavouring to restore Oliver, lest he should die before he could be hanged. In the midst of all this noise and commotion there was heard a sweet female voice, which quelled it in an instant. "'Giles!' whispered the voice from the stairhead. "'I'm here, miss,' replied Giles. "'Don't be frightened, miss. I ain't much injured. He didn't make a very desperate resistance, miss. I was soon too many for him.' "'Hush,' replied the young lady. "'You frightened my aunt as much as the thieves did. Is the poor creature much hurt?' "'Wounded desperate, miss,' replied Giles, with indescribable complacency. "'He looks as if he was a-goin', miss,' bawled Brittles in the same manner as before. "'Wouldn't you like to come and look at him, miss, in case he should?' "'Hush, pray, there's a good man,' rejoined the lady. "'Wait quietly only one instant while I speak to Aunt.' With a footstep as soft and gentle as the voice, the speaker tripped away. She soon returned with the direction that the wounded person was to be carried carefully upstairs to Mr. Giles's room and that Brittles was to saddle the pony and betake himself instantly to Chertsey, from which place he was to dispatch with all speed a constable and doctor. "'But won't you take one look at him first, miss?' asked Mr. Giles, with as much pride as if Oliver was some bird of rare plumage that he had skilfully brought down. Oh, "'Not one little peep, miss?' "'Not now for the world,' replied the young lady. "'Poor fellow! Oh, treat him kindly, Giles, for my sake.' 
the old servant looked up at the speaker as she turned away with a glance as proud and admiring as if she had been his own child then bending over oliver he helped to carry him upstairs with the care and solicitude of a woman End of chapter twenty eight chapter twenty nine of oliver twist by charles dickens in a handsome room though its furniture had rather the air of old-fashioned comfort than of modern elegance there sat two ladies at a well-spread breakfast-table mr giles dressed with scrupulous care in a full suit of black was in attendance upon them he had taken his station some half-way between the sideboard and the breakfast-table and with his body drawn up to its full height his head thrown back and inclined the merest trifle on one side, his left leg advanced and his right hand thrust into his waistcoat, while his left hung down by his side, grasping a waiter, looked like one who laboured under a very agreeable sense of his own merits and importance. Of the two ladies one was well advanced in years, but the high-backed oaken chair in which she sat was not more upright than she dressed with the utmost nicety and precision in a quaint mixture of bygone costume with some slight concessions to the prevailing taste which rather served to point the old style pleasantly than to impair its effect she sat in a stately manner with her hands folded on the table before her her eyes and age had dimmed but little of their brightness were attentively upon her young companion the younger lady was in the lovely bloom and springtime of womanhood at that age when if ever angels be for god's good purposes enthroned in mortal forms they may be without impiety supposed to abide in such as hers she was not past seventeen cast in so slight and exquisite a mould so mild and gentle so pure and beautiful that earth seemed not her element nor its rough creatures her fit companions the very intelligence that shone in her deep blue eyes and was stamped upon her noble head seemed scarcely of her age or of the world and yet the changing expression of sweetness and good humour the thousand lights that played about the face and left no shadow there above all the smile the cheerful happy smile were made for home and fireside peace and happiness she was busily engaged in the little offices of the table chancing to raise her eyes as the older lady was regarding her she playfully put back her hair which was simply braided on the forehead and threw into her beaming look such an expression of affection and artless loveliness that blessed spirits might have smiled to look upon her and brittles has been gone upwards of an hour has he asked the old lady after a pause an hour and twelve minutes ma'am replied giles referring to a silver watch which he drew forth by a black ribbon he is always slow remarked the old lady brittles always was a slow boy ma'am replied the attendant and seeing by the by that brittles had been a slow boy for upwards of thirty years there appeared no great probability of his ever being a fast one he gets worse instead of better i think said the elder lady it is very inexcusable of him if he stops to play with any other boys said the young lady smiling mr giles was apparently considering the propriety of indulging in a respectful smile himself when a gig drove up to the garden gate out of which there jumped a fat gentleman who ran straight up to the door and who getting quickly into the house by some mysterious process burst into the room and nearly overturned mr giles and the breakfast-table together i never heard of such a thing exclaimed the fat gentleman my dear mrs maylie bless my soul in the silence of the night too i never heard of such a thing 
With these expressions of condolence the fat gentleman shook hands with both ladies, and drawing up a chair inquired how they found themselves. "'You ought to be dead, positively dead with the fright,' said the fat gentleman. "'Why didn't you send? Bless me, my man should have come in a minute, and so would I, and my assistant would have been delighted, or anybody, I'm sure, under such circumstances. Oh, dear, dear, so unexpected, in the silence of the night, too.' The doctor seemed especially troubled by the fact of the robbery having been unexpected, and attempted in the night-time, as if it were the established custom of gentlemen in the house-breaking way to transact business at noon, and to make an appointment by post a day or two previous. "'And you, Miss Rose,' said the doctor, turning to the young lady, "'I—oh, very much so indeed,' said Rose, interrupting him. "'But there is a poor creature upstairs whom Aunt wishes you to see.' "'Ah, to be sure.' replied the doctor, so there is. That was your handiwork, Giles, I understand. Mr. Giles, who had been feverishly putting the teacups to rights, blushed very red, and said that he had had the honour. Honour, eh? said the doctor. Well, I don't know. Perhaps it's as honourable to hit a thief in the back kitchen as to hit your man at twelve paces. Fancy that he fired in the air, and you fought a duel, Giles. Mr. Giles, who thought this light treatment of the matter an unjust attempt at diminishing his glory, answered respectfully that it was not for the like of him to judge about that, but that he rather thought it was no joke to the opposite party. "'Gad, that's true,' said the doctor. "'Where is he? Show me the way. I'll look in again as I come down, Mrs. Maylie. That's the little window he got in at, eh? Well, I couldn't have believed it.' Talking all the way, he followed Mr. Giles upstairs and while he is going upstairs the reader may be informed that Mr. Losburn, a surgeon in the neighbourhood, known through the circuit of ten miles round as the doctor, had grown fat more from good humour than from good living, and was as kind and hearty and withal as eccentric an old bachelor as will be found in five times that space by any explorer alive. The doctor was absent much longer than either he or the ladies had anticipated. A large flat-box was fetched out of the gig, and a bedroom bell was rung very often, and the servants ran up and down stairs perpetually, from which tokens it was justly concluded that something important was going on above. At length he returned, and in reply to an anxious inquiry after his patient looked very mysterious, and closed the door carefully. "'This is a very extraordinary thing, Mrs. Maylie,' said the doctor, standing with his back to the door, as if to keep it shut. "'He is not in danger, I hope.' said the old lady. "'Why, that would not be an extraordinary thing under the circumstances,' replied the doctor, "'though I don't think he is. Have you seen the thief?' "'No,' rejoined the old lady. "'Nor heard anything about him?' "'No.' "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' interposed Giles, "'but I was going to tell you about him when Dr. Losburn came in.' The fact was that Giles had not at first been able to bring his mind to the avowal that he had only shot a boy. Such commendations had been bestowed upon his bravery that he could not for the life of him help postponing the explanation for a few delicious minutes, during which he had flourished at the very zenith of a brief reputation for undaunted courage. "'Rose wished to see the man,' said Mrs. Maylie, "'but I wouldn't hear of it.' <laughs> rejoined the doctor. "'There's nothing very alarming in his appearance.' "'Have you any objection to see him in my presence?' "'If it be necessary,' replied the old lady, "'certainly not.' "'Then I think it is necessary,' said the doctor. "'At all events, I'm quite sure you would deeply regret not having done so if you postponed it. He is perfectly quiet and comfortable now. Allow me, Miss Rose. Will you permit me?' 
not the slightest fear i pledge you my honour end of chapter twenty nine chapter thirty of oliver twist by charles dickens relates what oliver's new visitors thought of him with many loquacious assurances that they would be agreeably surprised in the aspect of the criminal the doctor drew the young lady's arm through one of his and offering his disengaged hand to mrs maylie led them with much ceremony and stateliness upstairs now said the doctor in a whisper as he softly turned the handle of the bedroom door let us hear what you think of him he has not been shaved very recently but he don't look at all ferocious notwithstanding stop though let me first see that he is in visiting order stepping before them he looked into the room motioning them to advance he closed the door when they had entered and gently drew back the curtains of the bed upon it in lieu of the dogged black-visaged ruffian they had expected to behold there lay a mere child worn with pain and exhaustion and sunk into a deep sleep his wounded arm bound up and splintered was crossed upon his chest his head reclined upon the other arm which was half hidden by his long hair as it streamed over the pillow the honest gentleman held the curtain in his hand and looked on for a minute or so in silence whilst he was watching the patient thus the younger lady glided softly past and seating herself in a chair by the bedside gathered oliver's hair from his face as she stooped over him her tears fell upon his forehead the boy stirred and smiled in his sleep as though these marks of pity and compassion had awakened some pleasant dream of a love and affection he had never known thus a strain of gentle music or the rippling of water in a silent place or the odour of a flower or the mention of a familiar word will sometimes call up sudden dim remembrances of scenes that never were in this life which vanish like a breath which some brief memory of a happier existence long gone by would seem to have awakened which no voluntary exertion of the mind can ever recall what can this mean exclaimed the elder lady this poor child can never have been the pupil of robbers vice said the surgeon replacing the curtain takes up her abode in many temples and who can say that a fair outside shall not enshrine her but at so early an age urged rose my dear young lady rejoined the surgeon mournfully shaking his head crime like death is not confined to the old and withered alone the youngest and fairest are too often its chosen victims but can you oh can you really believe that this delicate boy has been the voluntary associate of the worst outcasts of society said rose the surgeon shook his head in a manner which intimated that he feared it was very possible and observing that they might disturb the patient led the way into an adjoining apartment but even if he has been wicked pursued rose think how young he is think that he may never have known a mother's love or the comfort of a home that ill-usage and blows or the want of bread may have driven him to a herd with men who have forced him to guilt aunt dear aunt for mercy's sake think of this before you let them drag this sick child to a prison which in any case must be the grave of all his chances of amendment oh as you love me and know that i have never felt the want of parents in your goodness and affection but that i might have done so and might have been equally helpless and unprotected with this poor child have pity upon him before it is too late my dear love said the elder lady as she folded the weeping girl to her bosom do you think i would harm a hair of his head oh no replied rose eagerly no surely said the old lady 
my days are drawing to their close, and may mercy be shown to me as I show it to others. What can I do to save him, sir?' "'Let me think, ma'am,' said the doctor. "'Let me think.' Mr. Losburn thrust his hands into his pockets and took several turns up and down the room, often stopping and balancing himself on his toes and frowning frightfully. After various exclamations of, "'I've got it now!' and no i haven't and as many renewals of the walking and frowning he at length made a dead halt and spoke as follows i think if you give me a full and unlimited commission to bully giles and that little boy brittles i can manage it giles is a faithful fellow and an old servant i know but you can make it up to him in a thousand ways and reward him for being such a good shot besides you don't object to that unless there is some other way of preserving the child replied mrs Maylie. "'There is no other,' said the doctor. "'No other. Take my word for it.' "'Then my aunt invests you with full power,' said Rose, smiling through her tears. "'But pray, don't be harder upon the poor fellows than is indispensably necessary.' "'You seem to think,' retorted the doctor, "'that everybody is disposed to be hard-hearted to-day except yourself, Miss Rose. I only hope, for the sake of the rising male sex generally, that you may be found in as vulnerable and soft-hearted a mood by the first eligible young fellow who appeals to your compassion.' and i wish i were a young fellow that i might avail myself on the spot of such a favourable opportunity for doing so as the present you are as great a boy as poor brittles himself returned rose blushing well said the doctor laughing heartily that's no very difficult matter to return to this boy the great point of our agreement is yet to come he will wake in an hour or so, I dare say, and although I have told that thick-headed constable fellow downstairs that he mustn't be moved or spoken to, on peril of his life, I think we may converse with him without danger. Now, I make this stipulation, that I shall examine him in your presence, and that if from what he says we can judge, and I can show to the satisfaction of your cool reason that he is a real and thorough bad one, which is more than possible, he shall be left to his fate, without any further interference on my part, at all events. Oh, no, aunt entreated rose oh yes aunt said the doctor is it a bargain he cannot be hardened in vice said rose it is impossible very good retorted the doctor then so much the more reason for acceding to my proposition finally the treaty was entered into and the parties thereunto sat down to wait with some impatience until oliver should awake the patience of the two ladies was destined to undergo a longer trial than Mr. Losburn had led them to expect, for hour after hour passed on and still Oliver slumbered heavily. It was evening, indeed, before the kind-hearted doctor brought them the intelligence that he was at length sufficiently restored to be spoken to. The boy was very ill, he said, and weak from the loss of blood, but his mind was so troubled with anxiety to disclose something that he deemed it better to give him the opportunity than to insist upon his remaining quiet until next morning, which he should otherwise have done. The conference was a long one. Oliver told them all his simple history, and was often compelled to stop by pain and want of strength. It was a solemn thing to hear in the darkened room the feeble voice of the sick child recounting a weary catalogue of evils and calamities which hard men had brought upon him. Oh, if when we oppress and grind our fellow-creatures we bestowed but one thought on the dark evidences of human error, which, like dense and heavy clouds, are rising, slowly it is true, but not less surely, to heaven, 
to pour their after vengeance on our heads, if we heard but one instant in imagination the deep testimony of dead men's voices, which no power can stifle and no pride shut out, where would be the injury and injustice, the suffering, misery, cruelty, and wrong that each day's life brings with it? Oliver's pillow was smoothed by gentle hands that night, and loveliness and virtue watched him as he slept. He felt calm and happy, and could have died without a murmur. The momentous interview was no sooner concluded, and Oliver composed to rest again, than the doctor, after wiping his eyes and condemning them for being weak all at once, betook himself downstairs to open upon Mr. Giles, and finding nobody about the parlours, it occurred to him that he could perhaps originate the proceedings with better effect in the kitchen. So into the kitchen he went. There were assembled in that lower house of the domestic parliament the women-servants, Mr. Brittles, Mr. Giles, the tinker, who had received a special invitation to regale himself for the remainder of the day, in consideration of his services, and the constable. The latter gentleman had a large staff, a large head, large features, and large half-boots, and he looked as if he had been taking a proportionate allowance of ale, as indeed he had. The adventures of the previous night were still under discussion, for Mr. Giles was expatiating upon his presence of mind when the doctor entered. Mr. Brittles, with a mug of ale in his hand, was corroborating everything before his superior said it. "'Now sit still,' said the doctor, waving his hand. "'Thank you, sir,' said Mr. Giles. "'Mrs. wished some ale to be given out, sir, and as I felt no ways inclined for my own little room, sir, and was disposed for company. I am taking mine among em here." Brittles headed a low murmur, by which the ladies and gentlemen generally were understood to express the gratification they derived from Mr. Giles's condescension. Mr. Giles looked round with a patronizing air, as much as to say that so long as they behaved properly he would never desert them. "'How is the patient to-night, sir?' asked Mr. Giles. "'So-so,' returned the doctor. "'I am afraid you have got yourself into a scrape there, Mr. Giles.' "'I hope you don't mean to say, sir,' said Giles, trembling, "'that he's going to die. "'If I thought it, I should never be happy again. "'I wouldn't cut a boy off. "'No, not even Brittles there. "'Not for all the plate in the county, sir.' Uh, "'That's not the point,' said the doctor mysteriously. "'Mr. Giles, are you a Protestant?' "'Yes, sir. "'I hope so,' faltered Giles, who had turned very pale. "'And what are you, boy?' said the doctor, turning sharply upon Brittles. "'Lord, bless me, sir,' replied Brittle, starting violently. "'I'm the same as Mr. Giles, sir.' "'Then tell me this,' said the doctor. "'Both of you, both of you, are you going to take upon yourself to swear that that boy upstairs is the boy that was put through the little window last night? Out with it, come. We are prepared for you.' The doctor, who was universally considered one of the best-tempered creatures on earth, made this demand in such a dreadful tone of anger that Giles and Brittles, who were considerably muddled by ale and excitement, stared at each other in a state of stupefaction. "'Pay attention to the reply, constable, will you?' said the doctor, shaking his forefinger with great solemnity of manner, and tapping the bridge of his nose with it, to bespeak the exercise of that worthy's utmost acuteness. Something may come of this before long.' The constable looked as wise as he could, and took up his staff of office, which had been reclining indolently in the chimney-corner. "'It's a simple question of identity, you will observe,' said the doctor. <coughs> "'That's what it is, sir,' replied the constable, coughing with great violence, for he had finished his ale in a hurry, and some of it had gone the wrong way. 
here's the house broken into said the doctor and a couple of men catch one moment's glimpse of a boy in the midst of gunpowder smoke and in all the distraction of alarm and darkness here's a boy comes to the very same house next morning and because he happens to have his arm tied up these men lay violent hands upon him by doing which they place his life in great danger and swear he is the thief now the question is whether these men were justified by the fact if not in what situation do they place themselves the constable nodded profoundly he said if that wasn't law he would be glad to know what was i ask you again thundered the doctor are you on your solemn oaths able to identify that boy brittles looked doubtfully at mr giles mr giles looked doubtfully at brittles the constable put his hand behind his ear to catch the reply the two women and the tinker leaned forward to listen the doctor glanced keenly round when a ring was heard at the gate and at the same moment the sound of wheels it's the runners cried brittles to all appearance much relieved the what exclaimed the doctor aghast in his turn the bow street officer sir replied brittles taking up a candle me and mr giles sent for him this morning what cried the doctor yes replied brittles i sent a message up by the coachman and i only wondered they weren't here before sir well, you did did you then confound your slow coaches down here that's all said the doctor walking away End of chapter thirty chapter thirty one of oliver twist by charles dickens involves a critical position who's that inquired brittles opening the door a little way with the chain up and peeping out shading the candle with his hand open the door replied a man outside it's the officer from bow street as was sent to-day much comforted by this assurance brittles opened the door to its full width and confronted a portly man in a greatcoat who walked in without saying anything more and wiped his shoes on the mat as coolly as if he lived there just send somebody to relieve my mate will you young man said the officer he's in the gig a mind in the prad have you got a couches here that you could put it up in for five or ten minutes brittles replying in the affirmative and pointing out the building the portly man stepped back to the garden gate and helped his companion to put up the gig while brittles lighted them in a state of great admiration this done they returned to the house and being shown into a parlour took off their greatcoats and hats and showed like what they were the man who had knocked at the door was a stout personage of middle height aged about fifty with shiny black hair cropped pretty close half-whiskers a round face and sharp eyes the other was a red-headed bony man in top-boots with a rather ill-favoured countenance and a turned-up sinister-looking nose tell your governor that bladders and duff is here will you said the stouter man smoothing down his hair and laying a pair of handcuffs on the table no good evening master can i have a word or two with you in private if you please this was addressed to mr losburn who now made his appearance that gentleman motioning brittles to retire brought in the two ladies and shut the door this is the lady of the house said mr losburn motioning towards mrs maylie mr blathers made a bow being desired to sit down he put his hat on the floor and taking a chair motioned to duff to do the same the latter gentleman who did not appear quite so much accustomed to good society or quite so much at his ease in it one of the two seated himself after undergoing several muscular affections of the limbs and put the head of a stick into his mouth with some embarrassment now 
"'With regard to this here robbery, master,' said Blathers, "'what are the circumstances?' Mr. Losburn, who appeared desirous of gaining time, recounted them at great length, and with much circumlocution. Messrs. Blathers and Duff looked very knowing meanwhile, and occasionally exchanged a nod. "'I can't say for certain till I see the work, of course,' said Blathers. "'But my opinion at once is, though I don't mind committing myself to that extent, that this wasn't done by a yokel, eh, Duff?' "'Certainly not,' replied Duff. "'And translating the word yokel for the benefit of the ladies, I apprehend your meaning to be that this attempt was not made by a countryman,' said Mr. Losburn with a smile. "'That's it, master,' replied Blathers. "'This is all about the robbery, is it?' all replied the doctor now what is this about this here boy that the servants are talking on said blathers nothing at all replied the doctor one of the frightened servants chose to take it into his head that he had something to do with this attempt to break into the house but it's nonsense sheer absurdity very easy disposed of if it is remarked duff what he says is quite correct observed blathers nodding his head in a confirmatory way and playing carelessly with the handcuffs as if they were a pair of castanets who is the boy what account does he give of himself where did he come from he didn't drop out of the clouds did he master of course not replied the doctor with a nervous glance at the two ladies i know his whole history but we can talk about that presently you would like first to see the place where the thieves made their attempt i suppose Oh, certainly rejoined mr blathers we had better inspect the premises first and examine the servants afterwards that's the usual way of doing business lights were then procured and messrs blathers and duff attended by the native constable brittles giles and everybody else in short went into the little room at the end of the passage and looked out at the window and afterwards went round by way of the lawn and looked in at the window and after that had a candle handed out to inspect the shutters with, and after that a lantern to trace the footsteps with, and after that a pitchfork to poke the bushes with. This done, amidst the breathless interest of all beholders, they came in again, and Mr. Giles and Brittles were put through a melodramatic representation of their share in the previous night's adventures, which they performed some six times over, contradicting each other in not more than one important respect the first time, and in not more than a dozen the last. This consummation being arrived at, Blathers and Duff cleared the room, and held a long council together, compared with which, for secrecy and solemnity, a consultation of great doctors on the knottiest point in medicine would be mere child's play. Meanwhile the doctor walked up and down the next room in a very uneasy state, and Mrs. Maylie and Rose looked on with anxious faces. "'Upon my word,' he said, making a halt after a great number of very rapid turns, "'I hardly know what to do.' surely said rose the poor child's story faithfully repeated to these men will be sufficient to exonerate him i doubt it my dear young lady said the doctor shaking his head i don't think it would exonerate him either with them or with the legal functionaries of a higher grade what is he after all they would say a runaway judged by mere worldly considerations and probabilities his story is a very doubtful one you believe it surely interrupted rose i believe it strange as it is and perhaps i may be an old fool for doing so rejoined the doctor but i don't think it is exactly the tale for a practical police officer nevertheless why not demanded rose because my pretty cross-examiner replied the doctor because viewed with their eyes there are many ugly points about it 
he could only prove the parts that look ill, and none of those that look well. Confound the fellows, they will have the why and the wherefores, and will take nothing for granted. On his own showing, you see, he has been the companion of thieves for some time past. He has been carried to a police officer, on a charge of picking a gentleman's pocket. He has been taken away forcibly from that gentleman's house, to a place which he cannot describe or point out, and of the situation of which he has not the remotest idea. He is brought down to Chertsey by men who seem to have taken a violent fancy to him, whether he will or no, and he is put through a window to rob a house, and then, just at the very moment when he is going to alarm the inmates, and so do the very thing that would set him all to rights, there rushes into the way a blundering dog of a half-bred butler, and shoots him, as if on purpose to prevent his doing any good for himself. But don't you see all this?' "'I see it, of course,' replied Rose, smiling at the doctor's impetuosity. "'But still, I do not see anything in it to criminate the poor child.' "'No,' replied the doctor. Of course not. Bless the bright eyes of your sex. They never see, whether for good or bad, more than one side of any question, and that is always the one which first presents itself to them." Having given vent to this result of experience, the doctor put his hands into his pockets and walked up and down the room with even greater rapidity than before. "'The more I think of it,' said the doctor, "'the more I see that it will occasion endless trouble and difficulty if we put these men in possession of the boy's real story. I am certain it will not be believed. And even if they can do nothing to him in the end, still the dragging it forward and giving publicity to all the doubts that will be cast upon it must interfere materially with your benevolent plan of rescuing him from misery." "'Oh, what is to be done?' cried Rose. "'Dear, dear, why did they send for those people?' "'Why, indeed!' exclaimed Mrs. Maylie. "'I would not have had them here for the world.' "'All I know is,' said Mr. Losburn at last, sitting down with a kind of desperate calmness, "'that we must try and carry it off with a bold face. The object is a good one, and that must be our excuse. The boy has strong symptoms of fever upon him, and is in no condition to be talked to any more. That's one comfort. We must make the best of it, and if bad be the best it's no fault of ours. Come in.' "'Well, master.' said Blathers, entering the room, followed by his colleague, and making the door fast before he said any more. "'This warn't a put-up thing.' "'And what the devil's a put-up thing?' demanded the doctor impatiently. "'We call it a put-up robbery, ladies,' said Blathers, turning to them, as if he pitied their ignorance, but had contempt for the doctors, when the servants is in it.' "'Nobody suspects them in this case,' said Mrs. Maylie. "'Very likely not, ma'am,' replied Blathers. But they might have been in it, for all that." "'More likely on that wery account,' said Duff. "'We find it was a town-hand,' said Blathers, continuing his report, "'for the style of the work is first-right." "'Very pretty indeed it is,' remarked Duff in an undertone. "'There was two of em in it,' continued Blathers, "'and they had a boy with em. That's plain from the size of the window. That's all to be said at present.' We'll see this lad you've got upstairs at once, if you please." "'Perhaps they will take something to drink first, Mrs. Maylie,' said the doctor, his face brightening as if some new thought had occurred to him. "'Oh, to be sure!' exclaimed Rose eagerly. "'You shall have it immediately, if you will.' "'Why, thank you, miss,' said Blathers, drawing his coat-sleeves across his mouth. "'It's dry work, this sort of duty. Anything that's handy, miss, don't put yourself out of the way on our accounts. What shall it be?' asked the doctor, following the young lady to the sideboard. "'A little drop of spirits, master, if it's all the same,' 
replied Blathers. "'It's a cow dried from London, ma'am, and I always find that spirits comes home warmer to the feelings.' This interesting communication was addressed to Mrs. Maylie, who received it very graciously. While it was being conveyed to her, the doctor slipped out of the room. "'Ah!' said Mr. Blathers, not holding his wine-glass by the stem, but grasping the bottom between the thumb and forefinger of his left hand, and placing it in front of his chest. "'I have seen a good many pieces of business like this in my time, ladies.' "'That crack down in the back lane at Edmonton, Blathers,' said Duff, assisting his colleague's memory. "'That was something in this way, weren't it?' rejoined Blathers. "'That was done by Conky Chickweed, that was.' "'You always gave that to him,' replied Duff. "'It was the family pet, I tell you. Conky hadn't any more to do with it than I had.' "'Get out,' retorted Blathers. "'I know better.' Do you mind that time when Corky was robbed of his money, though? What a start that was! Better than any novel book I ever see." "'What was that?' inquired Rose, anxious to encourage any symptoms of good humour in the unwelcome visitors. "'It was a robbery, miss, that hardly anybody would have been down upon,' said Blathers. "'This here Conky chickweed.' "'Conky means nosy, ma'am,' interposed Duff. "'Of course the lady knows that, don't she?' demanded Blathers, always interrupting you, our partner. This here conky chickweed, miss, kept a public-house over Battlebridge way, and he had a cellar where a good many young lords went to see cock-fighting and badger-drawn and that, and a very intellectual manner the sports was conducted in, for I've seen em often. He weren't one of the family at that time, and one night he was robbed of three hundred and twenty-seven guineas in a canvas bag that was stole out of his bedroom in the dead of night by a tall man with a black patch over his eye, who had concealed himself under the bed, and after committing the robbery jumped slap out of the window, which was only a story high. He was very quick about it. But Conky was quick too, for he fired a blunderbuss after him, and roused the neighbourhood. They set up a hue and cry directly, and when they came to look about him found that Conky had hit the robber, for there was traces of blood all the way to some palings a good distance off and there they lost him. However, he had made off with the blunt, and consequently the name of Mr. Chickweed, Lysand Whittler, appeared in the Gazette among the other bankrupts, and all manner of benefits and subscriptions, and I don't know what all, was got up for the poor man. It was in a very low state of mind about his loss, and went up and down the streets for three or four days, a pulling of his hair in such a desperate manner that many people was afraid he might be going to make away with himself. One day he came up to the office all in a hurry, and had a private interview with the magistrate, who, after a great deal of talk, rings the bell and orders Jim Spires in Jim was an active officer, and tells him to go and assist Mr. Chickweed in apprehending the man as robbed his house. "'I see him, Spires,' said Chickweed, "'pass my house yesterday morning.' "'Why didn't you up and collar him?' says Spires. "'I was so struck of a heap you might have fractured my skull with a toothpick,' says the other man. But we're sure to have him, for between ten and eleven o'clock at night he passed again. Aspires no sooner heard this than he put some clean linen and a comb in his pocket, in case he should have to stop a day or two, and away he goes and sets himself down at the public-house windows behind the little red curtain with his hat on, all ready to bolt out at a moment's notice. He was smoking his pipe here late at night, when all of a sudden Chickweed roars out, "'Here he is! Stop! Thief! Murder!' Jim Spires dashes out, and there he sees Chickweed a-tearin' down the street in full cry. 
away goes spires on goes chickweed round turns the people everybody roars out thieves and chickweed himself keeps on shouting all the time like mad spires loses sight of him a minute as he turns a corner shoots round sees a little crowd dives in which is the man damn me said chickweed i've lost him again it was a remarkable occurrence but he weren't to be seen nowhere so they went back to the public house next morning spires took his old place and looked out from behind the curtain for a tall man with a black patch over his eye till his own two eyes ached again at last he couldn't help shutting them to ease him a minute and the very moment he did so he hears chickweed a roaring out here he is off he starts once more with chickweed half way down the street ahead of him and after twice as long a run as yesterday's one the man's lost again this was done once or twice more till one half of the neighbours gave out that mr chickweed had been robbed by the devil who was playing tricks with him afterwards and the other half that poor mr chickweed had gone mad with grief what did jim spire say inquired the doctor who had returned to the room shortly after the commencement of the story jim spires resumed the officer for a long time said nothing at all and listened to everything without seeming to which showed he understood his business but one morning he walked into the bar and taking out a snuff-box says chickweed i found out who has done this here robbery have you said chickweed oh my dear spires only let me have vengeance and i'll die contented oh my dear spires where is the villain come said spires offering him a pinch of snuff none of that gammon you did it yourself so he had and a good bit of money he had made by it too and nobody would never have found out if he hadn't been so precious anxious to keep up appearances said mr blathers putting down his wine-glass and clinking the handcuffs together very curious indeed observed the doctor now if you please you can walk upstairs if you please sir returned blathers Closely following Mr. Losburn, the two officers ascended to Oliver's bedroom, Mr. Giles preceding the party with a lighted candle. Oliver had been dozing, but looked worse and was more feverish than he had appeared yet. Being assisted by the doctor, he managed to sit up in the bed for a minute or so, and looked at the strangers without at all understanding what was going forward, in fact, without seeming to recollect where he was or what had been passing this said mr losburn speaking softly but with great vehemence notwithstanding this is the lad who being accidentally wounded by a spring-gun in some boyish trespass on mr what do you call him's ground at the back here comes to the house for assistance this morning and is immediately laid hold of and maltreated by that ingenious gentleman with a candle in his hand who has placed his life in considerable danger as i can professionally certify messrs blathers and duff looked at mr giles as he was thus recommended to their notice the bewildered butler gazed from them towards Oliver and from Oliver towards Mr. Losburn, with a most ludicrous mixture of fear and perplexity. "'You don't mean to deny that, I suppose,' said the doctor, laying Oliver gently down again. "'It was all done for the—for the best, sir,' answered Giles. "'I am sure I thought it was the boy, or I wouldn't have meddled with him. I am not of an inhuman disposition, sir.' "'Thought it was what boy?' inquired the senior officer the housebreaker's boy sir replied giles they-they certainly had a boy well do you think so now inquired blathers think what now replied giles looking vacantly at his questioner think it's the same boy stupid head rejoined blathers impatiently 
"'I don't know. I really don't know,' said Giles, with a rueful countenance. "'I couldn't swear to him.' "'What do you think?' asked Mr. Blathers. "'I don't know what to think,' replied poor Giles. "'I don't think he is the boy. Indeed, I am almost certain that it isn't. You know it can't be.' "'Has this man been a-drinking, sir?' inquired Blathers, turning to the doctor. "'What a precious mud-leaded chap you are!' said Duff, addressing Mr. Giles with supreme contempt. Mr. Losburn had been feeling the patient's pulse during this short dialogue, but he now rose from the chair by the bedside and remarked that if the officers had any doubts upon the subject, they would perhaps like to step into the next room and have brittles before them. Acting upon the suggestion, they adjourned to a neighbouring apartment, where Mr. Brittles, being called in, involved himself and his respected superior in such a wonderful maze of fresh contradictions and impossibilities as tended to throw no particular light on anything but the fact of his own strong mystification, except indeed his declarations that he shouldn't know the real boy if he were put before him that instant, that he had only taken Oliver to be he because Mr. Giles had said it was he and that Mr. Giles had five minutes previously admitted in the kitchen, that he began to be very much afraid he had been a little too hasty. Among other ingenious surmises the question then was raised whether Mr. Giles had really hit anybody, and upon examination of the fellow-pistol to that which he had fired, it turned out to have no more destructive loading than gunpowder and brown paper, a discovery which made a considerable impression on everybody but the doctor, who had drawn the ball about ten minutes before. Upon no one, however, did it make a greater impression than on Mr. Giles himself, who, after labouring for some hours under the fear of having mortally wounded a fellow-creature, eagerly caught at this new idea, and favoured it to the utmost. Finally, the officers, without troubling themselves very much about Oliver, left the churchy constable in the house, and took up their rest for that night in the town, promising to return the next morning. With the next morning there came a rumour that two men and a boy were in the cage at Kingston, who had been apprehended overnight under suspicious circumstances, and to Kingston Messrs. Blathers and Duff journeyed accordingly. The suspicious circumstances, however, resolving themselves on investigation into one fact, that they had been discovered sleeping under a haystack, which, although a great crime, is only punishable by imprisonment, and is, in the merciful eye of the English law, and its comprehensive love of all the king's subjects, held to be no satisfactory proof in the absence of all other evidence that the sleeper or sleepers have committed burglary accompanied with violence, and have therefore rendered themselves liable to the punishment of death. Messrs. Blathers and Duff came back again, as wise as they went. In short, after some more examination and a great deal more conversation, a neighbouring magistrate was readily induced to take the joint bail of Mrs. Maylie and Mr. Losburn, for Oliver's appearance if he should ever be called upon, and Blathers and Duff, being rewarded with a couple of guineas, returned to town with divided opinions on the subject of their expedition, the latter gentleman, on mature consideration of all the circumstances, inclining to the belief that the burglarious attempts had originated with the family pet, and the former being equally disposed to concede the full merit of it to the great Mr. Conkey Chickweed. Meanwhile, Oliver gradually throve and prospered under the united care of Mrs. Maylie, Rose, and the kind-hearted Mr. Losburn. If fervent prayers gushing from hearts overcharged with gratitude be heard in heaven, and if they be not what prayers are, the blessings which the orphan child called down upon them sunk into their souls, diffusing peace and happiness.
End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens Of the happy life Oliver began to lead with his kind friends. Oliver's ailings were neither slight nor few. In addition to the pain and delay attendant on a broken limb, his exposure to the wet and cold had brought on fever and ague, which hung about him for many weeks, and reduced him sadly. But at length he began by slow degrees to get better, and to be able to say sometimes in a few tearful words how deeply he felt the goodness of the two sweet ladies, and how ardently he hoped that when he grew strong and well again he could do something to show his gratitude, only something which would let them see the love and duty with which his breast was full, something, however slight, which would prove to them that their gentle kindness had not been cast away, but that the poor boy whom their charity had rescued from misery or death was eager to serve them with his whole heart and soul. "'Poor fellow,' said Rose, when Oliver had been one day feebly endeavouring to utter the words of thankfulness that rose to his pale lips. "'You shall have many opportunities of serving us, if you will. We are going to the country, and my aunt intends that you shall accompany us. The quiet place, the pure air, and all the pleasure and beauties of spring will restore you in a few days. We will employ you in a hundred ways when you can bear the trouble.' "'The trouble!' cried Oliver. "'Oh, dear lady, if I could but work for you, if I could only give you pleasure by watering your flowers, or watching your birds, or running up and down the whole day long to make you happy, what would I give to do it?' "'You shall give nothing at all,' said Mrs. Maylie, smiling. "'For, as I told you before, we shall employ you in a hundred ways, and if you only take half the trouble to please us that you promise now, you will make me very happy indeed.' "'Happy, ma'am,' cried Oliver. "'Oh, how kind of you to say so!' "'You will make me happier than I can tell you.' replied the young lady, to think that my dear good aunt should have been the means of rescuing any one from such misery as you have described to us would be an unspeakable pleasure to me. But to know that the object of her goodness and compassion was sincerely grateful and attached in consequence would delight me more than you can well imagine. Do you understand me? she inquired, watching Oliver's thoughtful face. Oh, yes, ma'am, yes, replied Oliver eagerly. But I was thinking that I am ungrateful now. "'To whom?' inquired the young lady. "'To the kind gentleman and the dear old nurse who took so much care of me before,' rejoined Oliver. "'If they knew how happy I am, they would be pleased, I am sure.' "'I am sure they would,' rejoined Oliver's benefactress. "'And Mr. Losburn has already been kind enough to promise that when you are well enough to bear the journey, he will carry you to see them.' "'Has he, ma'am?' cried Oliver, his face brightening with pleasure. I don't know what I shall do for joy when I see their faces once again." In a short time Oliver was sufficiently recovered to undergo the fatigue of this expedition. One morning he and Mr. Losburn set out accordingly, in a little carriage which belonged to Mrs. Maylie. When they came to Chertsey Bridge Oliver turned very pale, and uttered a loud exclamation. "'What's the matter with the boy?' cried the doctor, as usual all in a bustle. "'Do you see anything, hear anything, feel anything, eh?' "'That, sir,' cried Oliver, pointing out of the carriage window, "'that house!' "'Yes. Well, what of it? Stop, coachman, pull up here,' cried the doctor. "'What of the house, my man, eh?' "'The thieves! The house they took me to,' whispered Oliver. "'The devil it is!' cried the doctor. "'Hello there, let me out!' But before the coachman could dismount from his box he had tumbled out of the coach by some means or other, 
and running down to the deserted tenement began kicking at the door like a madman. "'Hello!' said a little ugly humpbacked man, opening the door so suddenly that the doctor, from the very impetus of his last kick, nearly fell forward into the passage. "'What's the matter here? "'Matter!' exclaimed the other, collaring him without a moment's reflection. "'A good deal. Robbery is the matter.' "'There'll be murder the matter, too,' replied the humpbacked man, coolly. "'If you don't take your hands off, do you hear me?' "'I hear you,' said the doctor, giving his captive a hearty shake. "'Where's—' confound the fellow, what's his rascally name? "'Sykes, that's it. Where's Sykes, you thief?' The humpbacked man stared, as if in excess of amazement and indignation, and twisting himself dexterously from the doctor's grasp, growled forth a volley of horrid oaths, and retired to the house. Before he could shut the door, however, the doctor had passed into the parlour without a word of parley. He looked anxiously round. Not an article of furniture, not a vestige of anything, animate or inanimate, not even the position of the cupboards, answered to Oliver's description. "'Now,' said the humpbacked man, who had watched him keenly, "'what do you mean by coming into my house in this violent way? Do you want to rob me or to murder me? Which is it? Did you ever know a man come out to do either in a chariot and pair, you ridiculous old vampire?' said the irritable doctor. "'What do you want, then?' demanded the hunchback. "'Will you take yourself off before I do you a mischief, curse you?' "'As soon as I think proper,' said Mr. Losburn, looking into the other parlour, which, like the first, bore no resemblance whatever to Oliver's account of it. "'I shall find you out some day, my friend.' "'Will you?' sneered the ill-favoured cripple. "'If you ever want me or me, I haven't lived here mad and all alone for five and twenty years to be scared by you. You shall pay for this, you shall pay for this.' and so saying the misshapen little demon set up a yell and danced upon the ground as if wild with rage stupid enough this muttered the doctor to himself the boy must have made a mistake here put that in your pocket and shut yourself up again with these words he flung the hunchback a piece of money and returned to the carriage the man followed to the chariot door, uttering the wildest imprecations and curses all the way. But as Mr. Losburn turned to speak to the driver, he looked into the carriage and eyed Oliver for an instant with a glance so sharp and fierce, and at the same time so furious and vindictive, that waking or sleeping he could not forget it for months afterwards. He continued to utter the most fearful imprecations until the driver had resumed his seat, and when they were once more on the way they could see him some distance behind beating his feet upon the ground and tearing his hair in transports of real or pretended rage. "'I am an ass,' said the doctor after a long silence. "'Did you know that before, Oliver?' "'No, sir.' "'Then don't forget it another time.' "'An ass,' said the doctor again, after a further silence of some minutes. "'Even if it had been the right place and the right fellows had been there, what could I have done single-handed? And if I had had assistance, I see no good that I should have done, except leading to my own exposure, and an unavoidable statement of the manner in which I have hushed up this business. That would have served me right, though. I am always involving myself in some scrape or other by acting on impulse. It might have done me good." Now the fact was that the excellent doctor had never acted upon anything but impulse all through his life and it was no bad compliment to the nature of the impulses which governed him that so far from being involved in any peculiar troubles or misfortunes he had the warmest respect and esteem of all who knew him. If the truth must be told, he was a little out of temper for a minute or two at being disappointed in procuring corroborative evidence of Oliver's story on the very first occasion on which he had a chance of obtaining any, 
He soon came round again, however, and finding that Oliver's replies to his questions were still as straightforward and consistent, and still delivered with as much apparent sincerity and truth as they had ever been, he made up his mind to attach full credence to them from that time forth. As Oliver knew the name of the street in which Mr. Brownlow resided, they were enabled to drive straight thither. When the coach turned into it his heart beat so violently that he could scarcely draw his breath. "'Now, my boy, which house is it?' inquired Mr. Losburn. "'That, that,' replied Oliver, pointing eagerly out of the window. "'The White House. Oh, make haste! Pray make haste! I feel as if I should die. It makes me tremble so!' "'Come, come,' said the good doctor, patting him on the shoulder. "'You will see them directly, and they will be overjoyed to find you safe and well.' "'Oh, I hope so,' cried Oliver. "'They were so good to me, so very good to me.' The coach rolled on. It stopped. No, that was the wrong house, the next door. It went on a few paces and stopped again. Oliver looked up at the windows, with tears of happy expectation coursing down his face. Alas, the white house was empty, and there was a bill in the window. To let. "'Knock at the next door,' cried Mr. Losburn, taking Oliver's arm in his. "'What has become of Mr. Brownlow, who used to live in the adjoining house? Do you know?' The servant did not know, but would go to inquire. She presently returned and said that Mr. Brownlow had sold off his goods and gone to the West Indies six weeks before. Oliver clasped his hands and sank feebly backwards. "'Has his housekeeper gone too?' inquired Mr. Losburn after a moment's pause. "'Yes, sir,' replied the servant. "'The old gentleman, the housekeeper, and a gentleman who was a friend of Mr. Brownlow's all went together.' "'Then turn us home again.' said Mr. Losburn to the driver, and don't stop to bait the horses till you get out of this confounded London. "'The bookstall-keeper, sir,' said Oliver. "'I know the way there. See him, sir, pray. Do see him.' "'My poor boy, this is disappointment enough for one day,' said the doctor. "'Quite enough for both of us. If we go to the bookstall-keeper's we shall certainly find that he is dead, or he has set his house on fire or run away. No, home again straight.' and in obedience to the doctor's impulse home they went. This bitter disappointment caused Oliver so much sorrow and grief, even in the midst of his happiness, for he had pleased himself many times during his illness with thinking of all that Mr. Brownlow and Mrs. Bedwin would say to him, and what delight it would be to tell them how many long days and nights he had passed in reflecting on what they had done for him, and in bewailing his cruel separation from them the hope of eventually clearing himself with them too and explaining how he had been forced away had buoyed him up and sustained him under many of his recent trials and now the idea that they should have gone so far and carried with him the belief that he was an impostor and a robber a belief which might remain uncontradicted to his dying day was almost more than he could bear the circumstance occasioned no alteration however in the behaviour of his benefactors after another fortnight, when the fine warm weather had fairly begun, and every tree and flower was putting forth its young leaves and rich blossoms, they made preparations for quitting the house at Chertsey for some months. Sending the plate which had so excited Fagin's cupidity to the bankers, and leaving Giles and another servant in care of the house, they departed to a cottage at some distance in the country, and took Oliver with them. Who can describe the pleasure and delight, the peace of mind and soft tranquillity the sickly boy felt in the balmy air, and among the green hills and rich woods of an inland village? 
who can tell how scenes of peace and quietude sink into the minds of pain-worn dwellers in close and noisy places and carry their own freshness deep into their jaded hearts men who have lived in crowded pent-up streets through lives of toil and who have never wished for change men to whom custom has indeed been second nature and who would have come almost to love each brick and stone that formed the narrow boundaries of their daily walks even they with the hand of death upon them have been known to yearn at last for one short glimpse of nature's face and carried far from the scenes of their old pains and pleasures have seemed to pass at once into a new state of being crawling forth from day to day to some green sunny spot they have had such memories wakened up in them by the sight of the sky and hill and plain and glistening water that a foretaste of heaven itself had soothed their quick decline and they have sunk into their tombs as peacefully as the sun whose setting they watched from their lonely chamber window but a few hours before faded from their dim and feeble sight the memories which peaceful country scenes call up are not of this world nor of its thoughts and hopes their gentle influence may teach us how to weave fresh garlands for the graves of those we loved may purify our thoughts and bear down before it all enmity and hatred but beneath all this there lingers in the least reflective mind a vague and half-formed consciousness of having held such feelings long before in some remote and distant time which calls up solemn thoughts of distant times to come and bends down pride and worldliness beneath it it was a lovely spot to which they repaired oliver whose days had been spent among squalid crowds and in the midst of noise and brawling seemed to enter on a new existence there the rose and honeysuckle clung to the cottage walls the ivy crept round the trunks of the trees and the garden flowers perfumed the air with delicious odours hard by was a little churchyard not crowded with tall unsightly gravestones but full of humble mounds covered with fresh turf and moss beneath which the old people of the village lay at rest oliver had wandered here and thinking of the wretched grave in which his mother lay would sometimes sit him down and sob unseen but when he raised his eyes to the deep sky overhead he would cease to think of her as lying in the ground and would weep for her sadly but without pain it was a happy time the days were peaceful and serene the nights brought with them neither fear nor care no languishing in a wretched prison or associating with wretched men nothing but pleasant and happy thoughts every morning he went to a white-haired old gentleman who lived near the little church who taught him to read better and to write and who spoke so kindly and took such pains that oliver could never try enough to please him then he would walk with mrs maylie and rose and hear them talk of books or perhaps sit near them in some shady place and listen while the young lady read which he could have done until it grew too dark to see the letters then he had his own lesson for the next day to prepare and at this he would work hard in a little room which looked into the garden till evening came slowly on when the ladies would walk out again and he with them listening with much pleasure to all they said and so happy if they wanted a flower that he could climb to reach or had forgotten anything he could run to fetch that he could never be quick enough about it when it became quite dark and they returned home the young lady would sit down to the piano and play some pleasant air or sing in a low and gentle voice some old song which it pleased her aunt to hear 
there would be no candles lighted at such times as these, and Oliver would sit by one of the windows listening to the sweet music in a perfect rapture. And when Sunday came, how different the day was spent from any way in which he had ever spent it yet, and how happily too, like all the other days in that most happy time. There was a little church in the morning, with the green leaves fluttering at the windows, the birds singing without, and the sweet-smelling air stealing in at the low porch and filling the homely building with its fragrance. The poor people were so neat and clean and knelt so reverently in prayer that it seemed a pleasure, not a tedious duty, their assembling there together. And though the singing might be rude, it was real and sounded more musical, to Oliver's ears at least, than any he had ever heard in church before. Then there were the walks as usual, and many calls at the clean houses of the labouring men, and at night Oliver read a chapter or two from the Bible which he had been studying all the week, and in the performance of which duty he felt more proud and pleased than if he had been the clergyman himself. In the morning Oliver would be afoot by six o'clock, roaming the fields and plundering the hedges far and wide for nosegays of wild flowers, with which he would return laden home and which it took great care and consideration to arrange to the best advantage for the embellishment of the breakfast-table. There was fresh groundsel, too, for Miss Maylie's birds, with which Oliver, who had been studying the subject under the able tuition of the village clerk, would decorate the cages in the most approved taste. When the birds were all made spruce and smart for the day, there was usually some little commission of charity to execute in the village, or, failing that, there was rare cricket-playing sometimes on the green or failing that, there was always something to do in the garden, or about the plants, to which Oliver, who had studied this science also under the same master who was a gardener by trade, applied himself with hearty good will, until Miss Rose made her appearance, when there were a thousand commendations to be bestowed on all he had done. So three months glided away, three months which, in the life of the most blessed and favoured of mortals, might have been unmingled happiness, and which in Oliver's were true felicity. With the purest and most amiable generosity on one side, and the truest, warmest, soul-felt gratitude on the other, it is no wonder that by the end of that short time Oliver Twist had become completely domesticated with the old lady and her niece, and that the fervent attachment of his young and sensitive heart was repaid by their pride in and attachment to himself. End of chapter 32 Chapter thirty three of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Wherein the happiness of Oliver and his friends experiences a sudden check. Spring flew swiftly by, and summer came. If the village had been beautiful at first, it was now in the full glow and luxuriance of its richness. The great trees, which had looked shrunken and bare in the earlier months, had now burst into strong life and health and stretching forth their green arms over the thirsty ground converted open and naked spots into choice nooks, where was a deep and pleasant shade from which to look upon the wide prospect, steeped in sunshine, which lay stretched beyond. The earth had donned her mantle of brightest green, and shed her richest perfumes abroad. It was the prime and vigour of the year. All things were glad and flourishing. Still the same quiet life went on at the little cottage, and the same cheerful serenity prevailed among its inmates. Oliver had long since grown stout and healthy, but health or sickness made no difference in his warm feelings to those about him, 
though they do in the feelings of a great many people. He was still the same gentle, attached, affectionate creature that he had been when pain and suffering had wasted his strength, and when he was dependent for every slight attention and comfort on those who tended him. One beautiful night, when they had taken a longer walk than was customary with them, for the day had been unusually warm and there was a brilliant moon, and a light wind had sprung up which was unusually refreshing. Rose had been in high spirits too when they had walked on in merry conversation until they had far exceeded their ordinary bounds. Mrs. Maylie being fatigued, they returned more slowly home. The young lady, merely throwing off her simple bonnet, sat down to the piano as usual. After running abstractedly over the keys for a few minutes, she fell into a low and very solemn air, and as she played it, they heard a sound as if she were weeping. "'Rose, my dear,' said the elder lady. Rose made no reply, but played a little quicker, as if the words had roused her from some painful thoughts. "'Rose, my love,' cried Mrs. Maylie, rising hastily, and bending over her. "'What is this? In tears, my dear child, what distresses you?' "'Nothing, aunt, nothing,' replied the young lady. "'I don't know what it is. I can't describe it, but I feel—' "'Not ill, my love,' interposed Mrs. Maylie. "'No, no, oh, not ill,' replied Rose, shuddering as though some deadly chillness were passing over her while she spoke. "'I shall be better presently. Close the window, pray.' Oliver hastened to comply with her request. The young lady, making an effort to recover her cheerfulness, strove to play some livelier tune, but her fingers dropped powerlessly over the keys. Covering her face with her hand, she sank upon a sofa, and gave vent to the tears which she was now unable to repress. "'My child,' said the elderly lady, folding her arms about her, "'I have never saw you so before.' "'I would not alarm you if I could avoid it,' rejoined Rose. "'But indeed I have tried very hard, and cannot help this.' I fear I am ill, aunt." She was indeed, for when candles were brought they saw that in the very short time which had elapsed since their return home the hue of her countenance had changed to a marble whiteness. Its expression had lost nothing of its beauty, but it was changed, and there was an anxious, haggard look about the gentle face which it had never worn before. Another minute, and it was suffused with a crimson flush, and a heavy wildness came over the soft blue eye. Again this disappeared like the shadow thrown by a passing cloud, and she was once more deadly pale. Oliver, who watched the old lady anxiously, observed that she was alarmed by these appearances, and so in truth was he, but seeing that she affected to make light of them, he endeavoured to do the same, and they so far succeeded that when Rose was persuaded by her aunt to retire for the night she was in better spirits, and appeared even in better health, assuring them that she felt certain she would rise in the morning quite well. "'I hope,' said Oliver, when Mrs. Maylie returned, "'that nothing is the matter. She don't look so well to-night, but—' The old lady motioned him not to speak, and sitting herself down in a dark corner of the room, remained silent for some time. At length she said in a trembling voice, "'I hope not, Oliver. I have been very happy with her for some years—too happy, perhaps. It may be time that I should meet with some misfortune, but I hope it is not this.' "'What?' inquired Oliver. The heavy blow, said the old lady, of losing the dear girl who has been so long my comfort and happiness. Oh, God forbid! exclaimed Oliver hastily. Amen to that, my child, said the old lady, wringing her hands. Surely there is no danger of anything so dreadful, said Oliver. Two hours ago she was quite well. 
she is very ill now rejoined mrs maylie and will be worse i am sure my dear dear rose oh what shall i do without her she gave way to such great grief that oliver suppressing his own emotion ventured to remonstrate with her and to beg earnestly that for the sake of the dear young lady herself she would be more calm and consider ma'am said oliver as the tears forced themselves into his eyes despite of his efforts to the contrary oh consider how young and good she is and what pleasure and comfort she gives to all about her i am sure certain quite certain that for your sake who are so good yourself and for her own and for the sake of all she makes so happy she will not die heaven will never let her die so young hush said mrs maylie laying her hand on oliver's head you think like a child poor boy but you teach me my duty notwithstanding i had quite forgotten it for a moment oliver but i hope i may be pardoned for i am old and have seen enough of illness and death to know the agony of separation from the objects of our love i have seen enough too to know that it is not always the youngest and best who are spared to those that love them but this should give us comfort in our sorrow for heaven is just and such things teach us impressively that there is a brighter world than this and that the passage to it is speedy god's will be done my lover and he knows how well oliver was surprised to see that as mrs maylie said these words she checked her lamentations as though by one effort and drawing herself up as she spoke became composed and firm he was still more astonished to find that this firmness lasted and that under all the care and watching which ensued mrs maylie was ever ready and collected performing all the duties which had devolved upon her steadily and to all external appearances even cheerfully but he was young and did not know what strong minds are capable of under trying circumstances how should he when their possessors so seldom know themselves an anxious night ensued when morning came mrs maylie's predictions were but too well verified rose was in the first stage of a high and dangerous fever we must be active oliver and not give way to useless grief said mrs maylie laying her finger on her lip as she looked steadily into his face this letter must be sent with all possible expedition to mr losburn it must be carried to the market-town which is not more than four miles off by the footpath across the field and thence dispatched by an express on horseback straight to chertsey the people at the inn will undertake to do this and i can trust you to see it done i know oliver could make no reply but looked his anxiety to be gone at once here is another letter said mrs maylie pausing to reflect but whether to send it now or wait until i see how rose goes on i scarcely know i would not forward it unless i fear the worst is it for chertsey too ma'am inquired oliver impatient to execute his commission and holding out his trembling hand for the letter no replied the old lady giving it to him mechanically oliver glanced at it and saw that it was directed to harry maylie esq at some great lord's house in the country where he could not make out shall it go ma'am asked oliver looking up impatiently i think not replied mrs maylie taking it back i will wait until to-morrow with these words she gave oliver her purse and he started off without more delay at the greatest speed he could muster swiftly he ran across the fields and down the little lanes which sometimes divided them now almost hidden by the high corn on either side and now emerging on an open field where the mowers and haymakers were busily at their work nor did he stop once save now and then for a few seconds to recover breath until he came in a great heat and covered with dust on the little market-place of the market-town 
he paused and looked about for the inn. There were a white bank and a red brewery and a yellow town hall, and in one corner was a large house with all the wood about it painted green, before which was the sign of the George. To this he hastened as soon as it caught his eye. He spoke to a postboy who was dozing under a gateway, and who, after hearing what he wanted, referred him to the ostler, who, after hearing all he had to say again, referred him to the landlord, who was a tall gentleman in a blue neckcloth, a white hat, drab breeches, and boots with tops to match. He leaned against a pump by the stable door, picking his teeth with a silver toothpick. This gentleman walked with much deliberation into the bar to make out the bill, which took a long time in making out and after it was ready and paid a horse had to be saddled and a man to be dressed, which took up ten good minutes more. Meanwhile Oliver was in such a desperate state of impatience and anxiety that he felt as if he could have jumped upon the horse himself and galloped away full tear to the next stage. At length all was ready, and the little parcel having been handed up, with many injunctions and entreaties for its speedy delivery, the man set spurs to his horse, and rattling over the uneven paving of the market-place, was out of the town and galloping along the turnpike road in a couple of minutes. As it was something to feel certain that assistance was sent for, and that no time had been lost, Oliver hurried up the inn-yard, with a somewhat lighter heart. He was turning out of the gateway when he accidentally stumbled against a tall man wrapped in a cloak, who was at that moment coming out of the inn-door. Ha! cried the man, fixing his eyes on Oliver and suddenly recoiling. What the devil is this? I beg your pardon, sir, said Oliver. I was in a great hurry to get home, and didn't see you were coming. Death! muttered the man to himself, glaring at the boy with his large, dark eyes. Who could have thought it? Grind him to ashes, he'd start up from the stone coffin to come in my way. I am sorry, stammered Oliver, confused by the strange man's wild look. I hope I have not hurt you. Rot you! murmured the man in a horrible passion between his clenched teeth if i had only the courage to say the word i might have been free from you in a night curses on your head and black death on your heart you imp what are you doing here the man shook his fist as he uttered these words incoherently he advanced towards oliver as if with the intention of aiming a blow at him but fell violently on the ground writhing and foaming in a fit oliver gazed for a moment at the struggles of the madman for such he supposed him to be and then darted off into the house for help. Having seen him safely carried into the hotel, he turned his face homewards, running as fast as he could to make up for lost time, and recalling with a great deal of astonishment and some fear the extraordinary behaviour of the person from whom he had just parted. The circumstance did not dwell on his recollection long, however, for when he reached the cottage there was enough to occupy his mind, and to drive all considerations of self completely from his memory. Rose Maylie had rapidly grown worse. Before midnight she was delirious. A medical practitioner who resided on the spot was in constant attendance upon her, and after first seeing the patient he had taken Mrs. Maylie aside and pronounced her disorder to be one of a most alarming nature. "'In fact,' he said, "'it would be little short of a miracle if she recovered.' How often did Oliver start from his bed that night, and stealing out with noiseless footstep to the staircase, listen for the slightest sound from the sick chamber? How often did a tremble shake his frame, and cold drops of terror start upon his brow, when a sudden trampling of feet caused him to fear that something too dreadful to think of had even then occurred? And what had been the fervency of all the prayers he had ever muttered, compared with those he poured forth now, in the agony and passion of a supplication for the life and health of the gentle creature, 
who was tottering on the deep grave's verge. Oh, the suspense, the fearful, acute suspense of standing idly by, while the life of one we dearly love is trembling in the balance! Oh, the racking thoughts that crowd upon the mind, and make the heart beat violently and the breath come thick, by the force of the images they conjure up before it! The desperate anxiety to be doing something, to relieve the pain or lessen the danger which we have no power to alleviate! the sinking of soul and spirit which the sad remembrance of our helplessness produces, what tortures can equal these, what reflections or endeavours can in the full tide and fever of the time allay them? Morning came, and the little cottage was lonely and still. People spoke in whispers, anxious faces appeared at the gate from time to time, women and children went away in tears. All the live-long day, and for hours after it had grown dark, Oliver paced softly up and down the garden, raising his eyes every instant to the sick chamber and shuddering to see the darkened window, looking as if death lay stretched inside. Late that night Mr. Lostburn arrived. "'It is hard,' said the good doctor, turning away as he spoke. "'So young, so much beloved, but there is very little hope.' Another morning. The sun shone brightly, as brightly as if it looked upon no misery or care, and with every leaf and flower in full bloom about her. With life and health and sounds and sights of joy surrounding her on every side, the fair young creature lay wasting fast. Oliver crept away to the old churchyard, and sitting down on one of the green mounds, wept and prayed for her in silence. There was such peace and beauty in the scene so much of brightness and mirth in the sunny landscape, such blithesome music in the songs of the summer birds, such freedom in the rapid flight of the rook careering overhead, so much of life and joyousness in all, that when the boy raised his aching eyes and looked about, the thought instinctively occurred to him that this was not the time for death, that Rose could surely never die when humbler things were all so glad and gay, that graves were for cold and cheerless winter not for sunlight and fragrance. He almost thought that shrouds were for the old and shrunken, and that they never wrapped the young and graceful form in their ghastly folds. A knell from the church-bell broke harshly on these youthful thoughts. Another, again. It was tolling for the funeral service. A group of humble mourners entered the gate, wearing white favours, for the corpse was young. They stood uncovered by a grave, and there was a mother a mother once among the weeping train. But the sun shone brightly, and the birds sang on. Oliver turned homeward, thinking on the many kindnesses he had received from the young lady, and wishing that the time might come again that he might never cease showing her how grateful and attached he was. He had no cause for self-reproach on the score of neglect or want of thought, for he had been devoted to her service, and yet a hundred little occasions rose up before him on which he fancied he might have been more zealous and more earnest, and wished he had been. We need be careful how we deal with those about us, when every death carries to some small circle of survivors thoughts of so much omitted, and so little done, of so many things forgotten, and so many more which might have been repaired. There is no remorse so deep as that which is unavailing. If we could be spared its tortures, let us remember this in time. When he reached home Mrs. Maylie was sitting in the little parlour. Oliver's heart sank at the sight of her, for she had never left the bedside of her niece, and he trembled to think what change could have driven her away. 
he learnt that she had fallen into a deep sleep from which she would waken neither to recovery and life or to bid them farewell and die. They sat listening and afraid to speak for hours. The untasted meal was removed, with looks which showed that their thoughts were elsewhere. They watched the sun as he sank lower and lower, and at length cast over sky and earth those brilliant hues which herald its departure. Their quick ears caught the sound of an approaching footstep. They both involuntarily darted to the door as Mr. Losburn entered. "'What of Rose?' cried the old lady. "'Tell me at once. I can bear it. Anything but suspense. Oh, tell me in the name of heaven!' "'You must compose yourself,' said the doctor, supporting her. "'Be calm, my dear ma'am. Pray.' "'Let me go, in God's name, my dear child. She is dead. She is dying.' "'No,' cried the doctor passionately. As he is good and merciful, she will live to bless us all for years to come." The lady fell upon her knees and tried to fold her hands together, but the energy which had supported her so long fled up to heaven with her first thanksgiving, and she sank into the friendly arms which were extended to receive her. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens contains some introductory particulars relative to a young gentleman who now arrives upon the scene, and a new adventure which happened to Oliver. It was almost too much happiness to bear. Oliver felt stunned and stupefied by the unexpected intelligence. He could not weep or speak or rest. He had scarcely the power of understanding anything that had passed until, after a long ramble in the quiet evening air, a burst of tears came to his relief and he seemed to awaken, all at once, to a full sense of the joyful change that had occurred, and the almost insupportable load of anguish which had been taken from his breast. The night was fast closing in when he returned homeward, laden with flowers which he had culled with peculiar care for the adornment of the sick chamber. As he walked briskly along the road he heard behind him the noise of some vehicle approaching at a furious pace. Looking round he saw that it was a post-chaise driven at great speed, and as the horses were galloping and the road was narrow, he stood leaning against a gate until it should have passed him. As it dashed on, Oliver caught a glimpse of a man in a white nightcap, whose face seemed familiar to him, although his view was so brief that he could not identify the person. In another second or two the nightcap was thrust out of the chaise window, and a stentorian voice bellowed to the driver to stop, which he did as soon as he could pull up his horses. Then the nightcap once again appeared and the same voice called Oliver by his name. "'Here!' cried the voice. "'Oliver! What's the news? Miss Rose! Master Oliver!' "'Is it you, Giles?' cried Oliver, running up to the chaise door. Giles popped out his nightcap again, preparatory to making some reply, when he was suddenly pulled back by a gentleman who occupied the other corner of the chaise, and who eagerly demanded what was the news. "'In a word,' cried the gentleman, "'better or worse?' "'Better, much better,' replied Oliver hastily. "'Thank heaven!' exclaimed the gentleman. "'Are you sure?' "'Quite sure,' replied Oliver. "'The change took place only a few hours ago, and Mr. Losburn says that all danger is at an end.' The gentleman said not another word, but opening the chaise door, leaped out, and taking Oliver hurriedly by the arm, led him aside. "'You are quite certain. There is no possibility of any mistake on your part, my boy, is there?' demanded the gentleman in a tremulous voice. Do not deceive me by awakening hopes that are not to be fulfilled. 
"'I would not for the world, sir,' replied Oliver. "'Indeed, you may believe me.' "'Mr. Lossburn's words were that she would live to bless us all for many years to come. I heard him say so.' The tears stood in Oliver's eyes as he recalled the scene which was the beginning of so much happiness, and the gentleman turned his face away and remained silent for some minutes. Oliver thought he heard him sob more than once, but he feared to interrupt him by any fresh remark, for he could well guess what his feelings were, and so stood apart, feigning to be occupied with his nosegay. All this time Mr. Giles, with a white nightcap on, had been sitting on the steps of the chaise, supporting an elbow on each knee and wiping his eyes with a blue cotton pocket-handkerchief dotted with white spots. That the honest fellow had not been feigning emotion was abundantly demonstrated by the very red eyes with which he regarded the young gentleman when he turned round and addressed him. "'I think you had better go on to my mother's in the chaise, Giles,' said he. "'I would rather walk slowly on so as to gain some little time before I see her. You can say I am coming.' "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Harry,' said Giles, giving a final polish to his ruffled countenance with a handkerchief. "'But if you would leave the postboy to say that, I should be very much obliged to you. It wouldn't be proper for the maids to see me in this state, sir. I should never have any more authority with them if they did.' "'Well,' rejoined Harry Maylie, smiling, "'you can do as you like. Let him go on with the luggage if you wish it, and do you follow with us. Only first exchange that nightcap for some more appropriate covering, or we shall be taken for madmen.' Mr. Giles, reminded of his unbecoming costume, snatched off and pocketed his nightcap, and substituted a hat of grave and sober shape which he took out of the chaise. This done, the postboy drove off. Giles, Mr. Maylie, and Oliver followed at their leisure. As they walked along, Oliver glanced from time to time with much interest and curiosity at the newcomer. He seemed about five-and-twenty years of age, and was of the middle height. His countenance was frank and handsome and his demeanour easy and prepossessing. Notwithstanding the difference between youth and age, he bore so strong a likeness to the old lady that Oliver would have had no great difficulty in imagining their relationship, if he had not already spoken of her as his mother. Mrs. Maylie was anxiously waiting to receive her son when he reached the cottage. The meeting did not take place without great emotion on both sides. "'Mother,' whispered the young man, "'why did you not write before?' "'I did,' replied Mrs. Maylie, "'but on reflection I determined to keep back the letter until I had heard Mr. Losburn's opinion.' "'But why?' said the young man. "'Why run the chance of that occurring which so nearly happened? If Rose had—I cannot utter that word now—if this illness had terminated differently, how could you ever have forgiven yourself? How could I ever have known happiness again?' "'If that had been the case, Harry,' said Mrs. Maylie, "'I fear your happiness would have been effectually blighted, and that your arrival here a day sooner or a day later would have been of very, very little import.' "'And who can wonder if it be so, mother?' rejoined the young man. "'Or why should I say if? It is. It is. You know it, mother. You must know it.' "'I know that she deserves the best and purest love the heart of a man can offer.' said Mrs. Maylie. I know that the devotion and affection of her nature require no ordinary return, but one that shall be deep and lasting. If I did not feel this, and know besides that a changed behaviour in one she loved would break her heart, I should not feel my task so difficult of performance, or have to encounter so many struggles in my own bosom, when I take what seems to be the strict line of duty.' "'This is unkind, mother,' said Harry. 
do you suppose that i am a boy ignorant of my own mind and mistaking the impulses of my own soul i think my dear son returned mrs maylie laying her hand upon his shoulder that youth has many generous impulses which do not last and that among them are some which being gratified become only the more fleeting above all i think said the lady fixing her eyes on her son's face that if an enthusiastic ardent and ambitious man marry a wife on whose name there is a stain which though it originate in no fault of hers may be visited by cold and sordid people upon her and upon his children also and in exact proportion to his success in the world be cast in his teeth and made the subject of sneers against him he may no matter how generous and good his nature one day repent of the connection he formed in early life and she may have the pain of knowing that he does so mother said the young man impatiently he would be a selfish brute unworthy alike of the name of man and of the woman you describe who acted thus you think so now harry replied his mother and ever will said the young man the mental agony i have suffered during the last two days wrings from me the avowal to you of a passion which as you well know is not one of yesterday nor one i have lightly formed on rose sweet gentle girl my heart is set as firmly as ever heart of man was set on woman i have no thought no view no hope in life beyond her and if you oppose me in this great stake you take my peace and happiness in your hands and cast them to the wind mother think better of this and of me and do not disregard the happiness of which you seem to think so little harry said mrs maylie it is because i think so much of warm and sensitive hearts that i would spare them from being wounded but we have said enough and more than enough on this matter just now let it rest with rose then interposed harry you will not press these overstrained opinions of yours so far as to throw any obstacle in my way i will not rejoined mrs maylie but i would have you consider i have considered was the impatient reply mother i have considered years and years i have considered ever since i have been capable of serious reflection my feelings remain unchanged as they ever will and why should i suffer a pain of delay in giving them vent which can be productive of no earthly good no before i leave this place rose shall hear me she shall said mrs maylie there is something in your manner which would almost imply that she will hear me coldly mother said the young man not coldly rejoined the old lady far from it how then urged the young man she has formed no other attachment no indeed replied his mother you have or i mistake too strong a hold on her affections already what i would say resumed the old lady stopping her son as he was about to speak is this before you stake your all on this chance before you suffer yourself to be carried to the highest point of hope reflect for a few moments my dear child on rose's history and consider what effect the knowledge of her doubtful birth may have on her decision devoted as she is to us with all the intensity of her noble mind and with that perfect sacrifice of self which in all matters great or trifling has always been her characteristic what do you mean that i leave you to discover replied mrs maylie i must go back to her god bless you i shall see you again to-night said the young man eagerly by and by replied the old lady when i leave rose will you tell her i am here said harry of course replied mrs maylie and say how anxious i have been and how much i have suffered and how i long to see her you will not refuse to do this mother no said the old lady i will tell her all and pressing her son's hand affectionately she hastened from the room mr losburn and oliver had remained at another end of the apartment while this hurried conversation was proceeding 
the former now held out his hand to Harry Maylie, and hearty salutations were exchanged between them. The doctor then communicated, in reply to multifarious questions from his young friend, a precise account of his patient's situation, which was quite as consolatory and full of promise as Oliver's statement had encouraged him to hope, and to the whole of which Mr. Giles, who affected to be busy about the luggage, listened with greedy ears. "'Have you shot anything particular lately, Giles?' inquired the doctor when he had concluded. "'Nothing particular, sir,' replied Mr. Giles, colouring up to the eyes. "'Nor catching any thieves, nor identifying any housebreakers?' said the doctor. "'Not at all, sir,' replied Mr. Giles, with much gravity. "'Well,' said the doctor, "'I am sorry to hear it, because you do that sort of thing admirably. Pray, how is Brittles?' "'The boy is very well, sir,' said Mr. Giles, recovering his usual tone of patronage, "'and sends his respectful duty, sir.' "'That's well,' said the doctor. Seeing you here reminds me, Mr. Giles, that on the day before that on which I was called away so hurriedly, I executed, at the request of your good mistress, a small commission in your favour. Would you step into this corner a moment, will you?" Mr. Giles walked into the corner with much importance, and some wonder, and was honoured with a short whispering conference with the doctor, on the termination of which he made a great many bows and retired with steps of unusual stateliness. The subject matter of this conference was not disclosed in the parlour, but the kitchen was speedily enlightened concerning it, for Mr. Giles walked straight thither, and having called for a mug of ale, announced with an air of majesty, which was highly effective, that it had pleased his mistress in consideration of his gallant behaviour on the occasion of that attempted robbery to deposit in the local savings-bank the sum of five-and-twenty pounds, for his sole use and benefit. At this the two women's servants lifted up their hands and eyes, and supposed that Mr. Giles would begin to be quite proud now, whereunto Mr. Giles, pulling out his shirt-frill, replied, No, no, and that if they observed that he was at all haughty to his inferiors he would thank them to tell him so. And then he made a great many other remarks, no less illustrative of his humility, which were received with equal favour and applause, and wherewithal as original and as much to the purpose as the remarks of great men commonly are. Above stairs the remainder of the evening passed cheerfully away, for the doctor was in high spirits, and however fatigued or thoughtful Harry Maylie might have been at first, he was not proof against the worthy gentleman's good humour, which displayed itself in a great variety of sallies and professional recollections, and an abundance of small jokes, which struck Oliver as being the drollest things he had ever heard, and caused him to laugh proportionately to the evident satisfaction of the doctor, who laughed immoderately at himself, and made Harry laugh almost as heartily by the very force of sympathy. So they were as pleasant a party as, under the circumstances, they could well have been, and it was late before they retired with light and thankful hearts to take that rest which, after the doubt and suspense they had recently undergone, they stood much in need. Oliver rose next morning in better heart, and went about his usual occupations, with more hope and pleasure than he had known for many days. The birds were once more hung out to sing in their old places, and the sweetest wild flowers that could be found were once more gathered to gladden Rose with their beauty. The melancholy which had seemed to the sad eyes of the anxious boy to hang for days past over every object, beautiful as all were, was dispelled by magic. The dew seemed to sparkle more brightly on the green leaves, the air to rustle among them with a sweeter music, and the sky itself to look more blue and bright. 
such is the influence which the condition of our own thoughts exercise even over the appearance of external objects men who look on nature and their fellow-men and cry that all is dark and gloomy are in the right but the sombre colours are reflections from their own jaundiced eyes and hearts the real hues are delicate and need a clearer vision it is worthy of remark and oliver did not fail to note it at the time that his morning expeditions were no longer made alone harry maylie after the very first morning when he met oliver coming laden home was seized with such a passion for flowers and displayed such a taste in their arrangement as left his young companion far behind if oliver were behindhand in these respects he knew where the best were to be found and morning after morning they scoured the country together and brought home the fairest that blossomed the window of the young lady's chamber was opened now for she loved to feel the rich summer air stream in and revive her with its freshness but there always stood in water just inside the lattice one particular little bunch which was made up with great care every morning oliver could not help noticing that the withered flowers were never thrown away although the little vase was regularly replenished nor could he help observing that whenever the doctor came into the garden he invariably cast his eyes up to that particular corner and nodded his head most expressively as he set forth on his morning's walk pending these observations the days were flying by and rose was rapidly recovering nor did oliver's time hang heavy on his hands although the young lady had not yet left her chamber and there were no evening walks save now and then for a short distance with mrs maylie he applied himself with redoubled assiduity to the instructions of the white-headed old gentleman and laboured so hard that his quick progress surprised even himself it was while he was engaged in this pursuit that he was greatly startled and distressed by a most unexpected occurrence the little room in which he was accustomed to sit when busy at his books was on the ground floor at the back of the house it was quite a cottage room with a lattice window around which were clusters of jessamine and honeysuckle that crept over the casement and filled the place with their delicious perfume it looked into a garden whence a wicket gate opened into a small paddock all beyond was fine meadowland and wood there was no other dwelling near in that direction and the prospect it commanded was very extensive one beautiful evening when the first shades of twilight were beginning to settle upon the earth oliver sat at this window intent upon his books he had been poring over them for some time and as the day had been uncommonly sultry and he had exerted himself a great deal it is no disparagement to the authors whoever they may have been to say that gradually and by slow degrees he fell asleep there is a kind of sleep that steals upon us sometimes which while it holds the body prisoner does not free the mind from a sense of things about it and enable it to ramble at its pleasure so far as an overpowering heaviness a prostration of strength and an utter inability to control our thoughts or power of motion can be called sleep this is it and yet we have a consciousness of all that is going on about us and if we dream at such a time words which are really spoken or sounds which really exist at the moment accommodate themselves with surprising readiness to our visions until reality and imagination become so strangely blended that it is afterwards almost a matter of impossibility to separate the two nor is this the most striking phenomenon incidental to such a state it is an undoubted fact that although our senses of touch and sight be for the time dead 
yet our sleeping thoughts and the visionary scenes that pass before us will be influenced and materially influenced by the mere silent presence of some external object which may not have been near us when we closed our eyes and of whose vicinity we have had no waking consciousness oliver knew perfectly well that he was in his own little room that his books were lying on the table before him that the sweet air was stirring among the creeping plants outside and yet he was asleep suddenly the scene changed the air became close and confined and he thought with a glow of terror that he was in the jew's house again there sat the hideous old man in his accustomed corner pointing at him and whispering to another man with his face averted who sat beside him hush my dear he thought he heard the jew say it is he sure enough come away he the other man seemed to answer could i mistake him think you if a crowd of ghosts were to put themselves into his exact shape and he stood amongst them there is something that would tell me how to point him out if you buried him fifty feet deep and took me across his grave i fancy i should know if there wasn't a mark above it that he lay buried there the man seemed to say this with such dreadful hatred that oliver awoke with the fear and started up good heaven what was that which sent the blood tingling to his heart and deprived him of his voice and of the power to move there there at the window close before him so close that he could have almost touched him before he started back with his eyes peering into the room and meeting his there stood the jew and beside him white with rage or fear or both were the scowling features of the man who had accosted him in the inn-yard it was but an instant a glance a flash before his eyes and they were gone but they had recognized him and he them and their look was firmly impressed upon his memory as if it had been deeply carved in stone and set before him from his birth he stood transfixed for a moment then leaping from the window into the garden called loudly for help End of chapter thirty four chapter thirty five of oliver twist by charles dickens containing the unsatisfactory result of oliver's adventure and a conversation of some importance between harry maylie and rose when the inmates of the house attracted by oliver's cries hurried to the spot from which they proceeded they found him pale and agitated pointing in the direction of the meadows behind the house and scarcely able to articulate the words the jew the jew mr giles was at a loss to comprehend what this outcry meant but harry maylie whose perceptions were something quicker and who had heard oliver's story from his mother understood it at once what direction did he take he asked catching up a heavy stick which was standing in a corner that replied oliver pointing out the course the man had taken i missed him in an instant then they're in the ditch said harry follow and keep as near me as you can so saying he sprang over the hedge and darted off with a speed which rendered it a matter of exceeding difficulty for the others to keep near him giles followed as well as he could and oliver followed too and in the course of a minute or two mr losburn who had been out walking and just then returned tumbled over the hedge after them and picking himself up with more agility than he could have been supposed to possess struck into the same course at no contemptible speed shouting all the while most prodigiously to know what was the matter on they all went nor stopped they once to breathe until the leader striking off into an angle of the field indicated by oliver began to search narrowly the ditch and hedge adjoining which afforded time for the remainder of the party to come up and for oliver to communicate to mr losburn the circumstances that had led to so vigorous a pursuit the search was all in vain there were not even the traces of recent footsteps to be seen 
They stood now on the summit of a little hill, commanding the open fields in every direction for three or four miles. There was the village in the hollow on the left, but in order to gain that, after pursuing the track Oliver had pointed out, the men must have made a circuit of open ground, which it was impossible they could have accomplished in so short a time. A thick wood skirted the meadowland in another direction, but they could not have gained that covert for the same reason. "'It must have been a dream, Oliver,' said Harry Maley. "'Oh, no, indeed, sir,' replied Oliver, shuddering at the very recollection of the old wretch's countenance. "'I saw him too plainly for that. I saw them both as plainly as I see you now.' "'Who was the other?' inquired Harry and Mr. Lossburn together. "'The very same man I told you of who came so suddenly upon me at the inn,' said Oliver. "'We had our eyes fixed full upon each other, and I could swear to him.' "'They took this way?' demanded Harry. "'Are you sure?' "'As I am that the men were at the window,' replied Oliver, pointing down as he spoke to the hedge which divided the cottage-garden from the meadow. The tall man leaped over just there, and the Jew, running a few paces to the right, crept through that gap. The two gentlemen watched Oliver's earnest face as he spoke, and looking from him to each other seemed to feel satisfied of the accuracy of what he said. Still in no direction were there any appearances of the trampling of men in hurried flight. The grass was long, but it was trodden down nowhere, save where their own feet had crushed it. The sides and brinks of the ditches were of damp clay, but in no one place could they discern the print of men's shoes, or the slightest mark which would indicate that any feet had pressed the ground for hours before. "'This is strange,' said Harry. "'Strange,' echoed the doctor. "'Blathers and Duff themselves could make nothing of it.' Notwithstanding the evidently useless nature of their search, they did not desist until the coming on of night rendered its further prosecution hopeless, and even then they gave it up with reluctance. Giles was dispatched to the different alehouses in the village, furnished with the best description Oliver could give of the appearance and dress of the strangers. Of these the Jew was, at all events, sufficiently remarkable to be remembered, supposing he had been seen drinking or loitering about. But Giles returned without any intelligence calculated to dispel or lessen the mystery. On the next day fresh search was made, and the inquiries renewed, but with no better success. On the day following Oliver and Mr. Maley repaired to the market-town, in the hope of seeing or hearing something of the men there, but this effort was equally fruitless. After a few days the affair began to be forgotten, as most affairs are, when wonder, having no fresh food to support it, dies away of itself. Meanwhile Rose was rapidly recovering. She had left her room, was able to go out, and mixing once more with the family carried joy into the hearts of all. But although this happy change had a visible effect on the circle, and although cheerful voices and merry laughter were once more heard in the cottage, there was at times an unwonted restraint upon some there, even upon Rose herself, which Oliver could not fail to remark. Mrs. Maley and her son were often closeted together for a long time, and more than once Rose appeared with traces of tears upon her face. After Mr. Losburn had fixed a day for his departure to Chertsey these symptoms increased, and it became evident that something was in progress which affected the peace of the young lady, and of somebody else besides. At length one morning, when Rose was alone in the breakfast-parlour, Harry Maley entered, and, with some hesitation, begged permission to speak with her for a few moments. "'A few, a very few, will suffice, Rose,' said the young man, drawing his chair towards her. "'What I shall have to say has already presented itself to your mind, 
the most cherished hopes of my heart are not unknown to you, though from my lips you have not heard them stated. Rose had been very pale from the moment of his entrance, but that might have been the effect of her recent illness. She merely bowed, and bending over some plants that stood near her, waited in silence for him to proceed. "'I—I I ought to have left here before,' said Harry. "'You should indeed,' replied Rose. "'Forgive me for saying so, but I wish you had.' "'I was brought here by the most dreadful and agonizing of all apprehensions,' said the young man, "'the fear of losing the one dear being on whom my every wish and hope are fixed. "'You had been dying, trembling between earth and heaven. "'We know that when the young, the beautiful, the good are visited with sickness, "'their pure spirits insensibly turn towards their bright home of lasting rest. "'We know, heaven help us, that the best and fairest of our kind "'too often fade in blooming.' There were tears in the eyes of the gentle girl as these words were spoken, and when one fell upon the flower over which she bent, and glistened brightly in its cup making it more beautiful, it seemed as though the outpouring of her fresh young heart claimed kindred naturally with the loveliest things in nature. "'A creature,' continued the young man passionately, "'a creature as fair and innocent of guile as one of God's own angels, fluttered between life and death. Oh, who could hope, when the distant world to which she was akin, half open to her view, that she would return to the sorrow and calamity of this? Rose, Rose, to know that you are passing away like some soft shadow, which a light from above casts upon the earth, to have no hope that you would be spared to those who linger here, hardly to know a reason why you should be, to feel that you belong to that bright sphere whither so many of the fairest and the best have winged their early flight, and yet to pray, amid all these consolations, that you might be restored to those who loved you. These were distractions almost too great to bear. They were mine by day and by night and with them came such a rushing torrent of fears and apprehensions, and selfish regrets, lest you should die, and never know how devotedly I love you, as almost bore down sense and reason in its course. You recovered, day by day, and almost hour by hour, some drop of health came back, and mingling with the spent and feeble stream of life which circulated languidly about you, swelled it again to a high and rushing tide. I have watched you change almost from death to life, with eyes that turned blind with their eagerness and deep affection. Do not tell me that you wish I had lost this, for it has softened my heart to all mankind." "'I did not mean that,' said Rose, weeping. "'I only wish you had left here, that you might have turned to high and noble pursuits again, to pursuits well worthy of you.' "'There is no pursuit more worthy of me more worthy of the highest nature that exists, than the struggle to win such a heart as yours," said the young man, taking her hand. "'Rose, my own dear Rose, for years, for years I have loved you, hoping to win my way to fame, and then come proudly home and tell you it had been pursued only for you to share. Thinking in my daydreams how I would remind you, in that happy moment, of the many silent tokens I had given of a boy's attachment, and claim your hand as in redemption of some old mute contract that had been sealed between us. That time has not arrived, but here, with not fame won and no young vision realised, I offer you the heart so long your own, and stake my all upon the words with which you greet the offer." "'Your behaviour has ever been kind and noble,' said Rose, mastering the emotions by which she was agitated. "'As you believe that I am not insensible or ungrateful, so hear my answer. It is that I may endeavour to deserve you. It is, dear Rose." "'It is,' replied Rose, 
that you must endeavour to forget me, not as your old, dearly attached companion, for that would wound me deeply, but as the object of your love. Look into the world. Think how many hearts you would be proud to gain are there. Confide some other passion to me, if you will. I will be the truest, warmest, and most faithful friend you have." There was a pause, during which Rose, who had covered her face with one hand, gave free vent to her tears. Harry still retained the other. "'And your reasons, Rose,' he said at length in a low voice, "'your reasons for this decision?' "'You have a right to know them,' rejoined Rose. "'You can say nothing to alter my resolution. It is a duty that I must perform. I owe it alike to others and to myself.' To yourself? Yes, Harry, I owe it to myself that I, a friendless, portionless girl, with a blight upon my name, should not give your friends reason to suspect that I sordidly yielded to your first passion, and fastened myself a clog on all your hopes and projects. I owe it to you and yours to prevent you from opposing in the warmth of your generous nature this obstacle to your progress in the world. If your inclinations chime in with your sense of duty, Harry began, they do not replied Rose, colouring deeply. "'Then you return, my love,' said Harry. "'Say but that, dear Rose, say but that, and soften the bitterness of this hard disappointment. "'If I could have done so without doing heavy wrong to him I loved,' rejoined Rose, "'I could have—' "'Have received this declaration very differently,' said Harry. "'Do not conceal that from me at least, Rose.' "'I could,' said Rose. "'Stay,' she added, disengaging her hand. "'Why should we prolong this painful interview?' most painful to me, and yet productive of lasting happiness notwithstanding, for it will be happiness to know that I once held the high place in your regard which I now occupy, and every triumph you achieve in life will animate me with new fortitude and firmness. Farewell, Harry. As we have met to-day we meet no more, but in other relations than those in which this conversation hath placed us we may be long and happily entwined and may every blessing that the prayers of a true and earnest heart can call down from the source of all truth and sincerity cheer and prosper you." "'Another word, Rose,' said Harry. "'Your reason in your own words, from your own lips, let me hear it.' "'The prospect before you,' answered Rose firmly, "'is a brilliant one. All the honours to which great talents and powerful connections can help men in public life are in store for you but those connections are proud, and I will neither mingle with such as may hold in scorn the mother who gave me life, nor bring disgrace or failure on the son of her who has so well supplied that mother's place." In a word, said the young lady, turning away, as her temporary firmness forsook her, there is a stain upon my name which the world visits on innocent heads. I shall carry it into no blood but my own, and the reproach shall rest alone on me. One more word, Rose. Dearest Rose, one more, cried Harry, throwing himself before her. If I had been less, less fortunate the world would call it, if some obscure and peaceful life had been my destiny, if I had been poor, sick, and helpless, would you have turned from me then? Or has my probable advancement to riches and honour given this scruple birth? Do not press me to reply, answered Rose. The question does not arise, and never will. It is unfair, almost unkind to urge it. If your answer be what I almost dare to hope it is, retorted Harry, it will shed a gleam of happiness upon my lonely way and light the path before me. It is not an idle thing to do so much by the utterance of a few brief words, for one who loves you beyond all else. Oh, Rose, in the name of my ardent and enduring attachment, in the name of all I have suffered for you, and all you doom me to undergo, 
answer me this one question then if your lot had been differently cast rejoined rose if you had been even a little but not so far above me if i could have been a help and comfort to you in any humble scene of peace and retirement and not a blot and drawback in ambitious and distinguished crowds i should have been spared this trial i have every reason to be happy very happy now but then harry i own i should have been happier busy recollections of old hopes cherished as a girl long ago crowded into the mind of rose while making this avowal but they brought tears with them as old hopes will when they come back withered and they relieved her i cannot help this weakness and it makes my purpose stronger said rose extending her hand i must leave you now indeed i ask one promise said harry once and only once more say within a year uh, but it may be much sooner i may speak to you again on this subject for the last time not to press me to alter my right determination replied rose with a melancholy smile it will be useless no said harry to hear you repeat it if you will finally repeat it i will lay at your feet whatever of station or fortune i may possess and if you still adhere to your present resolution will not seek by word or act to change it then let it be so rejoined rose it is but one pang the more and by that time i may be enabled to bear it better she extended her hand again but the young man caught her to his bosom and imprinting one kiss on her beautiful forehead hurried from the room End of chapter 35